If you select this objective, keep it cal keep it left. If you select this objective, keep a tally of kill points each time an enemy model is destroyed. Add one to this tally, or that. Let me research. If you select this objective, keep a tally of till point. Tally of till point. Yeah, fuck. You're if right. You, yeah, I'm fine. Other than having, having possibly a minor stroke, I'm fine. <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that thinks leaks suck, but we're going to roll with it. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And uh, yeah, we are talking today. This is going to be a very special episode of Blossom. I mean, very special episode of uh, Preferred Enemies. We are kind of discarding our normal uh, show format today because we're going to be talking about 9th edition and the Indominus box. Uh as you may be aware, uh, this box was recently shipped to a whole bunch of content providers, and stuff started hitting the internet almost immediately, to the point where we had to ro- move up the date at which we could talk about it, with GW's blessing, of course. Uh, so that's what we're doing today. Uh, so we will have a little bit of news and new releases be- as as relates to 9th edition, and, and the stuff that's going to be coming out when it's for pre-order. But otherwise, uh, you know, listener mail, hobby progress, morale f- phase, those will all return uh, in our next episode. But today we're going to we're going to talk about the rules and we're going to break this into two parts. First part, we are going to talk about the core rules so that everybody has access to now because they've released those via PDF. The second part of the show will be talking about all the stuff that's not in the core rules, because much like 8th edition, most of the, or, you know, while the, the base functionality of the game is public to everyone, you have to have the book to get all the stuff beyond that. So we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about that in the second half. But uh, first, uh, new, we are going to, like I said, have a little bit of news and new releases. And the news is July 11th is the date for pre-order. Yay. <laughs> so so pre-order but the rules and the chapter approved and the campaign book so yeah well is it a campaign book or well they're calling it i think the champions yeah. book or something like that which i think is i think it's going to be like a, a the match match play rules and stuff like that which i don't know i don't know if that's gonna it's been kind of unclear i don't i'm not sure if that's part of like the chapter approved thing or if that's something else Okay, so according to their pre-order date article, so there's chapter approved, and that's going to include the mission pack, the grand tournament mission pack, and the points values, which is like the way chapter approved was done last year, where it's it's two books, but it's one purchase. And that's that's their competitive play yearly update, which means our yearly updates have now moved to, theoretically, to July, so we're now on the same cycle as Age of Sigmar, so summer to summer, although... It remains to be seen if we st- if we don't get a winter chapter approved. Um, the the Crusade Journal is just uh, a bunch of data, like a bunch of sheets for filling out Crusade armies. Yeah, and I'll probably have. I'm hoping a little fluff. I'm hoping it's not just nope. sheet like they. Nope, rip it's out. just a journal. 
for writing stuff out. Yep. I don't know if I need a journal. I can do that myself. But this yeah. is a Warhammer branded journal. We'll see. <laughs> but it is so it's it is noteworthy that it is coming out. Yeah. And then a new open war deck, which I'll definitely be picking up because I think those are fun. They are because they, they provide a new sense of randomness to your games that might not be in the book without, I guess, rolling dice. Yeah. So the good news is Indomitus chapter approved the Crusade Journal and open war cards will be available for to pre-order from the 11th of July. There's a two week pre-order window. They will be shipping or they'll be in store July 25th. OK, that's exciting. I kind of was hoping it would be after I move when all this was hitting. But hey, it's hitting now. I'm going to pick it up and then move it with me. Yep, and I, I believe I have seen some snippets from like store, like order form sheets that have been hitting that indicate that the rule book, the standalone rule book, will also be available that with this pre order date. That's, That's good. good because I, I know we had talked, and I think Kevin and I were slightly worried, hoping that the rule book would be come out the same date because like sisters, Harlequins, all those they had a book included, and well then. The book came out later, so I'm glad that they're releasing at the same time as Indominus comes out. Now, the thing we don't have necessarily is concrete fixed pricing on this, although the price we've been seeing for Indominus is about $200. That's a lot less than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Considering how much is in the box. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was expecting closer to 300 to be honest. Yeah. Now, it's it's a really, really good deal. I mean, I would say it's probably, a, yes, a good deal, but... I think for for like the the targeted audience, I still think Black Reach is the best for because it was so accessible. Oh, well, and also Black Black Reach was made for new players, and I think that is the thing we have to keep in mind: is this was not this is not at all. And, and and I'm and so that that's a good way to just kind of switch over to what is actually in the Indominus box. And obviously, this has been covered, and we talked last episode about how even GW was like, "This is for veteran gamers. This is not really meant as a it's a launch product, not a starter product." And I would say that is absolutely true. Uh, what you get in the box, you get the special edition core rulebook, which is really nice. Um, unfortunately, we only have one copy to go around, so I had to basically send out photos of everything to the rest of the team. Um, we have the Edge of Silence book, which has the basic story about the Pariah Crusade, photos of all the models, and the data sheets for them. There are no points in this, much like Dark uh, Imperium did not have points. I don't, or no, they did have points, didn't it? Dark Imperium did have points. They were just different than the points in the codexes. Yeah, I believe that. I think that's correct. Yeah, there are no points for anything. They do have the data sheets. And if you don't have the appropriate codexes, you can't use like some like some of the rules in here. Because like all the Space Marine stuff has Angels of Death C codex Space Marines. Or the Necrons all have uh, Living Metal or, or they have Living Metal C codex Necrons or Reanimation Protocol C codex Necrons. So definitely not for a starting person. No, if you don't have the codexes for these, you you can't actually use them fully. Like you could you could use the basic stat abilities, but you stats and, and weapon abilities, but you wouldn't have their factional abilities. So you you kind of have to have or like the Premier's Chaplain. This model knows one litany of eight C below and one litany from the litanies of battle C codex Space Marines. So you can't even use like the characters fully without having the codexes that that they use. So Necron, Space Marines, and Dark Angels are all needed. 
No, you don't need dark angels unless okay. you're playing them as dark angels. Okay. So just space marines and necrons, my bad. Yeah. So yeah, it's it is not what I would call a complete. It is not a complete product as far as like you could just pick this up and play. And they've said like all the units in here will be usable for other marine chapters, and they've shown people like doing a here's blood angels assault intercessors, and here's you know raven wing outriders and stuff like that. But it's like there's until you have like a full downloadable product that has all the data sheets for them and says like they get if you're their dark angels they get this or their blood angels they get this until they have that it's kind of nebulous and then you get a, like you get all the models and the models are absolutely beautiful i've put together some of them uh i like i especially put together the eradicators because they are the last page of um space marine uh, instructions for building and the other side of it is the first page of Necrons. And I wanted to give that page to Richard so he'd actually be able to put together like the Necron Overlord without having to kind of guess at it. He, he, yeah. Although he's actually pretty straightforward to put together because he's all of one, two, three, four, like five parts, mm-hmm. six parts. I mean, so. guessing's half the fun of assembly anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like some of the characters go together, like they're they're pretty consistent. Like the Eradicators all went together pretty much in the same way. They used the same parts. The poses are just slightly different in a couple of but very minorly. But like the Chaplain is one of those characters where like one of the pieces is his like one leg and then a little bit of sprue that leans up leads up to just his head floating there. And that slots into the body in a weird way. So there, yeah. there's some that are just cut in weird ways to get the dynamic posing they wanted. The Eradicators are the Meltzer Rifles, right? Yes. Okay. They're the better Fire Dragons. Yes. I'm still sad. Two wound Fire Dragons. Got it. With more Two range. wound firing twice, 24-inch Melta Fire Dragons uh, yeah. with three up armor and four toughness and two wounds. No, two up armor. They're in Gravis armor. Oh, oh wow. I mean, let me double check that, but they should be because Gravis armor is almost into... Nope, three up armor. Sorry, three up armor. That part is at least the same as a fire. Oh, dragon. sorry, tough five, not tough four. Tough five, ow. tough five. Gravis gives you plus one toughness, not so a better armor. Tough save. five instead of tough three. Yeah. <laughs> but they only move five inches. They move slower than other space marines because they're in Gravis armor. Yeah, but still, tough five, three up armor has survivability. Twenty-four inch range has range. Uh, they're, they're just good and and can shoot twice if they pick if they all fire at one unit and why wouldn't you exactly i mean i can i can tell why you wouldn't because if you'd have overkill but yeah, yeah. And, and that and then like the basis for said models and like i said the instructions for assembling them and then the the really nice decal sheet that has like all the decals for like all the founding chapters and such and, and that's really cool and that's it so if you're in, like there's no 44 by 30 or 22 by 30. Actually, you'd want a 44 by 30. So two kill team boards. There's not, that's not in there. No dice, no measurement tools because <laughs> they're assuming you have those. And especially if they're sitting, assuming you have codexes, you're, you're going to have all those. Yeah. So that is, that. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that is what, that is what is in Indomitus. It's a big box too. And it was, and it was packed solid. It was a very heavy box. But uh, and also I do like that on this product, they did have all the like in past products, they've had like the or like 
for Blackreach, they had some of the orcs and space marines on the same sprue, and you had to like kind of parse out which pieces were you know, which. So it was a little bit harder to split up. This one, all the Necrons are on on their own sprues. The only ones where they were shared is two of the character sprues. There's like this section is very clearly the Space Marine section, and there's two little plastic bits connecting it to the next sprue over, which is very clearly a Necron character. And so those are easy to separate out. And then I was able to just basically hand all the sprues to Richard and say, here you go. So that that was very easy. And also, I was impressed that the Necron Warriors actually have both weapon options in the box for all oh, 20 yeah. of them. Yeah. As as you said, like, I, I imagine that they may just use these sprues as the Necron kit. They're that good. The only thing they might not do is because all these models also have, like, foot pegs because the bases all have predetermined holes in them. Mm, that's yeah. like the one thing I could see them not modeling. So that, but then like on a couple of the characters, I've clipped the foot pegs off so I could put them on custom bases. So it could easily be something where like, Hey, here's bases with holes in them. And then here, like, here's the part you can cut off if you don't want to use those. So, so yeah, we'll see what they, what they end up doing with that. But yeah, July 11th is when all of this will become available for pre-order and based on pr- past promises that as soon as, the rules and such were going up for pre-order, and I can't imagine they wouldn't have the rule book available for pre-order the same day that chapter approved was. Because <laughs> it would be silly to get chapter approved and then have to wait two weeks to get a full rule book <laughs> and actually use it. Uh, you would think. Yeah, it, I shouldn't give them ideas, I know. but Although it does surprise me that they've got, like... A great, like they have the Grand Tournament 2020 Mission Pack as part of Chapter Approved. When, as we'll talk about in the second half, they have all the like matched play Eternal War missions here that have been designed by a lot of people who work on major tournaments. So it's like, yeah, here's some missions in here, but don't use those. Use these instead, <laughs> unless they're just reprinting those in Chapter Approved, which also seems an odd choice. I would assume they're reprints, but I would also think the rationale behind it is. Then you can take a thin book rather than a big codex book or rule book. True. True. Although, again, there's stuff that's not in the core rule document that is kind of important for matched play, like army construction and stratagems and things like that that you would want to have reference to. So we'll see. We'll, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, in the next week or so, they'll cover more about what's in chapter approved and how it differs from what's in the main rule book. Although they, you know, nobody's really seen the main rule book except for those of us who have had early access to it. So, uh, but hopefully by the time we're done with this, a lot of you will have an idea of what's in this main rule book. So and with that, I say, let's move on to the core rules. Okay. So the core rules for this set are it, it, the way I've described it to somebody who I was talking, talking to a couple of days ago is that it's a lot like eighth edition, but there are enough m- small tweaks and changes that it will catch you up if you're not wa- if you're not looking for it like if you, if you just assume that things work the same way it will mess you up a little bit and, and so like i said I, you can follow along in your pdf copy that you've downloaded from games workshop or warhammer community uh, i will be following along in the in both the PDF and the print book, the page, they're slightly different in the way things are arranged, but they're really, really close. So 
So one thing I did really like about this is that they define things really well. Like one of the first things they do in this is they define what is an army? What do keywords represent? What is considered a unit? What is unit coherency? And that's one of our first changes is unit coherency has changed. And this was actually first revealed in the Gene Stealer Cult preview. And people kind of were surprised by this one. So, you know, coherency, uh, your units now have a coherency range of two inches horizontally and five inches vertically. It used to be six, if I remember right, but two inches horizontally, five inches vertically. Each model must be in unit coherency with one other model from their own unit. Okay, fine. That's not any different. However, while a unit has six or more models, every model or each model must be in unit coherency with two other models from their own unit. Which means you can no no longer string out a single line across the table. You can't put 30 crude along the back edge of the opponent's side. (laughs) You cannot, no. And actually with some of these changes... You have to put two units uh, of 30 each, like, too deep. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you'd have to have, like, 30 over here and 30 over here. Or, well, you can't... Okay, so one thing you can legally do... It, one thing you can legally do is what people are calling a dog bone, where at the ends of the line, you have a triangle of guys. Yes. Yeah. But then when you start losing models... It gets you, bad fast. It gets bad, yeah. <laughs> and we'll we'll get to that when we get to the morale phase. But yeah, that. so yes, you can do that. Really bad idea. <laughs> really, really bad idea to do that. Well, just don't plan on losing any models. Good luck on that. <laughs> but yeah, so they it's like they want groups to be these like coherent squads kind of pulled close together. Like especially once they get beyond six models. So like your stock in like Imperial Guard squad is ten guys. They're gonna have to kinda double up a bit. You won't be able to have units that have these long footprints on the table. They want you they want units to behave as like cohesive small groups. Let's see. Next thing, engagement range. Uh, engagement range is defined, and it's a, it is used consistently throughout the rules. And I do like this. Finally, that instead of having just like well, the well, you got to be within an inch, unless you don't need to be. But engagement range is uh, when a model is within one inch horizontally and five inches vertically of an enemy model, you are considered engaged with them, and you can't the models cannot be set up within engagement range of enemy models. That five-inch vertical is important because that's what gets around the, ha-ha, I'm on the second floor, you can't attack me, which was an issue, enough of an issue in the last edition that tournaments started coming up with, like, rules to basically say, nah, any unit can be uh, assaulted even if you're not on the same floor as them. Yeah, I just like that they clarified it in the rules, and, like, it it seems like they've done a much better job in this rulebook of being precise in their language Mm -hmm. and trying to like clearly define it so that there's no uh, room for arguments. You'd think that. Well, I mean, (laughs) you'd think that, but much better. Obviously haven't been on the internet for the last, No, I have, I have, but (laughs) it's much better than it's been in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully there will be some day one FAQs coming out and like, develop or you know designer commentary that will mm-hmm. spell some of these things out because i think there's a few things that people are are catching that even like some of the playtesters have even said like this wasn't necessarily intended this way there will be a day one faq 
but it's still kind of a we're kind of in a weird spot with with a couple of these, but it is much more concise. I also like the fact that each section has bullet points at the end that basically summarize what was just discussed. That's good because I have a very short attention span, so yes, I need, I need summaries. And it's good to do a quick reference or two. Right. Yeah, agreed. Uh, measuring distances. Uh, they talk about the fact that always measure close, like you always measure from base to base. Now, this was in the eighth edition book, but it was just kind of tucked away in a in an t- italic sidebar. So having this like clear defined, this is what we mean when we say measuring. Uh, and like you can measure distances whenever you want. Um, if several units are tied for the closest, the player resolving the rule that applies to them decides you don't have to randomly roll off or anything. And that, that's the like that's for so for that five inches verticality, you're measuring from five the base to base. So it doesn't matter how tall your monstrous creature is, as long as it's but it what matters is the base is what so the base is still kind of what defines the area that this thing controls is. I also like that they have clearly defined what within and wholly within means. <laughs> Cause that was those were points of contention for a while. And just to be clear, a model or unit being within, let's say, within six inches of another model, as long as any part of the base of the model is within, like, six inches of that model, it is within. If any part of any model's base in the unit is within six inches, the unit is within. Wholly within means the entire base has to be within. And if it's a unit wholly within, every model in the unit has to be wholly within. So again, fi- like finally, very concisely spelled out, unambiguously. Great. They do have a, a little side mar- side bit for wobbly models. I think the weirdness of placing models where they're not supposed to go hopefully will be gone because I think this wobbly model is is really clear that it's like the, if the model it would be unstable. Not so much the model is. Because they say, like, if the model would fall as soon as somebody nudges the table, the model can be there. Like, you can, as long as both players agree, the model is there, but you still have to be able to hold the model there if somebody, like, wants to shoot at it to check for line of sight, things like that. Uh, dice. We do have clarification, again, on, on what dice rolling means. They also finally applied uh, order of operations on how modifiers work. <laughs> Which I know we like. A, I think a couple episodes we had a rule. We were wondering like, so when does this extra strength get added? Is it multiplied and then added, or added and then multiplied? So it is now very clearly: you divide, you multiply, you add, then you subtract, and then round up fractions. And then we get to a point that has already caused some contention: dice rolls cannot be modified to less than one. And that was something that was not in the eighth edition book. Yeah. And the reason this matters, <laughs> we might as well cover it now. In the data sheets for Indomitus, the Blade Guard veterans have storm shields. These storm shields do not function the same way as storm shields have functioned in the past. Storm shields were originally a three up save, or three up and vulnerable save. They are now a four up and vulnerable save and improve the unit's armor save by, or save value. They just have save value. Improve the unit's save value by one. Not add one to their save rolls, improve the save value, which means they move from a three up to a two up save. Okay, fine, great. However, theoretically, and again, this is theoretical, we do not have the unit FAQs on this, but theoretically, 
a Terminator with a Storm Shield would have a 2-up save and a 4-up invulnerable, and the Storm Shield would then improve their 2-up save to a 1-up. Natural ones automatically fail, but if you have a 1-up save and dice can't be modified to less than 1, then a weapon could have infinite AP, and you would still save it on a a 2-up. Because the die roll would, because when you make an armor save, you're actually, the AP is subtracted from the result on the die. It doesn't change your armor save. Right. This is probably not an intentional side effect. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a thing that is being hotly debated right now. Right. And, And the part of the reason for that is in Age of Sigmar, there are a lot of units that have one up saves. And they explicitly, like, have FAQ'd. Uh, Age of Sigmar to say that no, if you have a one-up save, like doesn't matter where you get hit with, you only fail on a one. So I don't know that they that they plan on porting that ruling over to to 40k. I'm not opposed to having the one-up saves in the game, but I think they need to be very very careful with how they apply them. Right now, there are some units like the units that are mostly going to get a, take advantage of this. You know, Thunderhammer, Storm Shield, Terminators. Uh, custodes with with storm shields again, assuming that this is a universal change in storm shields. Also, I have to wonder if the, this also would be the first time that what is printed as the data sheet in a starter or launch box does not match what is in the updated codex. So I could even see theoretically a change of those storm shields saying. Add one to your sa- your saving throws, like add one to your armor saves, not to the saving value, but to the die rolled, and then it would get around that. But uh, yeah, we don't know yet, and so there's a lot of people getting very worked up over arguing an uh, over arguing something that is completely theoretical at this point. But it is it is worth noting that that they do specify that a die roll can't ever be less than one. That you know once mod. No matter what the modifier is, if it would result in a zero or less, it's just a one. So, okay, fine. They do talk about rerolls. Uh, that rerolls basically, uh, again, they're applied before modifiers. Uh, you can never reroll a die more than once, and they do define what an unmodified die roll is. Result of any roll after rerolls, but before modifiers. So anything that refers to like an unmodified roll of one, for example, an armor save always fails on an un, you know saves always fail on an unmodified die roll of one. Means if you roll a natural one and you reroll it and it's still a natural one, it's a one. Ta-da! They define roll offs. Okay, we think we all know what those are. Sequencing. I do like this. They clarify very. You know, it's again specifically spelled out if several rolls are resolved at the same time. If it's your turn, you choose the order that they go in. I, that's always been kind. That's been in the FAQs in the past, but now we have concrete in the rules. That's what this means. Defining what starting strength, half strength, and destroyed units are. Again, you know these should all be pretty much common sense, but having strict definitions for these really help. And it's something that we like. I think older versions of the rules tended to have these, and Eighth Edition was very light on all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, a breakdown of data sheets. Uh, nothing really new here. Uh, I mean, data sheets are pretty much identical to 8th edition, although there's a lot more icons being used than condensed data sheet versions. 
specifically that you could have data sheets in in multiple languages at once and just use icons to represent. Well, I imagine that I imagine that the icons will probably be used in the app as well. Like that's probably the yes, real estate. I could definitely see that. Also, I could see them when they start printing. Like they've been printing data sheets in kits for a while now. But you always get them in like five different languages, so they print the same data sheet twice. They're probably going to print like they show the condensed data sheet. The name is in like five, five or six languages, but then the stat lines are using icons, so that will allow them mm-hmm. to print maybe one version. But yeah, I think you're right. I think the app will probably use those icons. No, they do specifically say a condensed version of a model's data sheet can be found in its construction guide. Contains yeah. less information than the full version, but will still get your unit on the field radar. Okay, so there we go. Answer. It helps if I read these. Reading's hard. Reading is, it, they say it's fundamental, but I disagree. But <laughs> I will say that is only in the PDF version. The core rule book does not mention those icons at all. Hmm. I think that's why I missed it because yeah, it's not in in the core rules. That is that is only on the the downloadable version. Likely excuse. It's true. <laughs> that's why I said it was likely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, battle round. We have this broken down. There are now seven phases because we have added the command phase. They also specify for out of phase rules that rules that apply to a specific phase only apply when used in that phase. So, for example, if you get to do a shooting ability, like shoot as though it were the shooting phase, you can't use shooting phase stratagems on that. Or if you have a unit abilities that work in the shooting phase, they don't apply outside of that, even if you get to do those kinds of actions. I like that they clarified that. Yep. Now, when impl- resolving an out-of-phase rule, all rules that normally apply in that phase continue to apply. Phase-specific stratagems cannot be used when resolving out-of-phase rules. But they do mention that you can only find out about stratagems in the Warhammer 40,000 core book. So, yeah. So, yeah. Again, clear, concise. Love it. Uh, the command phase. We talked about this in, pe- in past episodes as they were revealing things. Uh, you gain a CP if your army's battle-forged, which pretty much they all should be, really. You resolve any – if you have any rules, like mission-specific rules or unit-specific rules that trigger in the command phase, you do those things. Then I also like that they tell you when you progress to the next phase on all of these. So there's, n- again, no ambiguity over, like, when do we move to the next thing? Uh, the movement phase has now been split into two parts. Move units, reinforcements. No longer is there any of this eh, at the end of the movement phase. No, there's move units reinforcements phase and move units. You know, you select a unit in your army to move. It can make a normal move, advance or remain stationary uh, units that are engagement range of any enemy models can either fall back or remain stationary. And then you select another army and your mo- unit to move. Once all your units have moved, progress to the reinforcement steps. Movement is pretty much the same. Normal moves work the same way. Advancing works the same way. Remain stationary is just don't do a thing. Falling back is a bit different, though. When a unit falls back, you know, you have to move away, you know, from any outside of engagement range of any enemy models. However, what's changed is if you fall back, you can no longer manifest psychic powers either. You can't shoot. You can't charge. You can't do psychic powers. And there's no benefit to flying and falling back. If you fall back, you just don't do anything. So... Uh, Tau battlesuits no longer get to jump away and shoot you. 
So unless they're Titanic. Unless they're Titanic. And that is a that is across the board. If you are a Titanic model, you can fall back and you can't charge at all if you're Titanic. But you can fall back and shoot or manifest a psychic power, which means uh, Magnus, I think, is Magnus Titanic? Uh, I don't know. Good Let question. me check real quick. He is not. So if Magnus falls back, he cannot he cannot cast psychic powers. I don't see him falling back though, but not necessarily, well, but So the thing I like about it is this just makes it so that one of the biggest complaints we have for 8th edition is that when you get into assault, you just fall back and like there's no reason not to. Now there's reasons not to. Now you have to make that strategic choice of like okay, if I fall back, I can't do anything even if I have fly, even if I'm a psyker. Maybe it is better to just stay locked in and you know and, and try to fight. Mm-hmm. And and this is also an improvement. I'm hoping to now see less fly models because I saw lots of people taking fly just so they could fall back and still shoot. And so now that that's not an option for them, will we go back to seeing more ground units that are cheaper instead of the flying ones? May very yeah. well. Uh, and then the reinforcements phase. Uh, Reinforcements units to start the battle in a location other than the battlefield. Set up your reinforcement units one at a time as described by the rules to let them start the battle in locations other than the battlefield. So if you have like teleportarium rules or webway rules, whatever, what have you, or like gene stealer cult ambush rules, this is, you know, all those rules would f- apply to the reinforcements phase. Uh, you reinforcement units cannot make a normal move an advance, fall back or remain stationary this turn. They always count as having moved. Um, if you can't set them up on the battle by the end of the battlefield, they are just count as they do count as being destroyed. Once all your reinforcements have been set up, then you move on to the psychic phase. But we're not done with the movement phase yet because we also have clarifications of removing over terrain, flying, and transports. And again, trans and like transports no longer get just a little si- half of a sidebar. They get a whole page specifying exactly how everything works with transports, which is great. Um, let's see. Moving over terrain. Uh, if a terrain feature is an inch or less, you can just ignore it. You can just move over it normally. If it's taller than an inch, you have to take the height moved into account with your movement. Unless you fly. If you fly, you can move over their models and you can ignore vertical distances when you, when you move. Normal moves, advanced moves, or falling back. You know what I didn't mention charging? That comes later. But again, you know, specifying very clearly, when we say you ignore stuff, you ignore vertical distance with flying. And you ignore other models when you move. Great. Love it. Very clear. Um, transports. Transports pretty much work similarly. Uh, you embark, you can embark once every model in a unit is within, is within, not wholly within, within three inches of the transport. You can't get into a transport that was within an engagement range of any enemy models. That, I believe, is a bit different. Yeah, that is different. So if somebody uh, charges your uh, your transport, you cannot get into it. Um, you can't embark and disembark in the same phase. Units cannot do anything or be affected in any way while they're embarked within a transport. That is, again, pretty much the same as it was before, but very clearly spelled out here. When you disembark, uh, if you can disembark, you have to disembark before the transport moves. You have to get out and be wholly within three inches of the transport and not within engagement range of enemy models. So that's, again, pretty consistent. 
which does mean you have to check for verticality. So you can't get out if it would put you within five inches of a model above you. Keep that in mind. Hmm. Units that have disembarked count as having moved this turn, but they can still act normally and move. So you still get your like three inch disembark range and then you like six inch movement. But you'll even if you stand still, you still count as having moved for the purposes of effects that are triggered, but you know, that are triggered by having moved or penalties such as for like heavy weapons. Uh, destroyed transports, they also spell out the process for how. Yeah, like that model has the explodes ability or equivalent roll to see if it explodes, resolve any resulting damage to nearby units before setting up any embark, any units embarked with it within it on the battlefield. And then you have to disembark before the vehicle model is removed. So you cannot remove the vehicle and then put the models where the vehicle was. Right. I know a lot of people have played it kind of that way where it's like, okay, the vehicle's dead. Now here are these five guys standing where, nope. You have to get them out and then remove the vehicle. They are never affected by the explodes ability, but they also still, you still roll for each model in there, roll a D, and for every one, you get to choose a model that didn't survive. And units cannot declare a charge or perform a heroic intervention at the same turn that they disembarked from a destroyed transport model. Generally, it's not going to happen on your turn, but heroic interventions, it would matter there if there was a character inside. So, again, very clear. So, we finished the movement phase. We're going to move... Oh, sorry. There's still aircraft to talk about. <laughs> aircraft, uh, in the core rulebook, they get two pages. They consolidate it down to one. It's the same text, just smaller format. Aircraft have a minimum move. If you can't uh, make a minimum move, it's destroyed, unless you're using strategic reserves. So for so- if some reason... that That's if you couldn't do the move without going off the, the edge of the table. Mm. So if you're using strategic reserves, which we'll get to in part two... The model just come goes away and will come back. But if you're not using strategic reserves, the model's destroyed if it goes off the table. Uh, aircraft engagement range, you can always move within an enemy aircraft's engagement range unless uh, you can move over aircraft in their bases when you make a move. Aircraft can make normal move even if they're within engagement range. Basically, they don't interact because they're supposed to be so different in height that it doesn't matter. Units can make a normal move or advance even if you're within an engagement range of enemy aircraft and no other models. So, again, aircraft basically, yes, they take up a spot on the table because bases work that way. We haven't figured out levitation technology in in a meaningful way for these models, but the bases basically don't count. You just can't end your move on top of the base, but you could end your move right next to the base. Also, if you are... consolidating or doing a heroic intervention you ignore aircraft when you're figuring out like moving towards the clear the nearest enemy model unless the model heroically intervening or consolidating can fly then you have to count consider it moving on to the psychic phase i really don't think the psychic phase changed a whole lot well one thing they did as well is they took the the competitive play rules and just worked them into the core rules. So before, if you were playing just casually, you could manifest multiple psychic powers in the same turn. Yeah. And now core rules across the board, you can't manifest psychic power more than once other than smite. And smite does get more difficult to Mm -hmm. cast each time. Yeah. That, so the rules that we're used to playing haven't changed a whole lot, but it has changed from what the core rules were previously. Agreed. Um, but yeah, psychic tests work the same way. You still perils on a double one or double six. 
And also, uh, you don't resolve a psychic power's effects until it's successfully manifested. So anything that triggers off of a psychic power being resolved specifically refers to, I, I think this was a subject that came up in chat, uh, an episode or two ago. Like whether something, like, I think when we were talking about Death Guard, like, did, you know, if you manif, if, if you resolve a psychic power, you heal a wound on mm-hmm. one, like one of their relics. You actually have to resolve the power, and you don't resolve the power until you have successfully manifested it, and it's made it past Deny the Witch. So, uh, Deny the Witch works the same way. Again, once all your psychic psychers have manifested psychic powers, you pr- progress to the shooting phase. Shooting phase! The main rules for shooting are pretty much unchanged. You still pick an army to shoot, or a unit from your army to shoot with. You resolve any or all ranged weapon attacks that model has. You can select different targets for each weapon. Uh, you do, they do specify you have to pick all your targets before you start resolving any attacks. And you have to, if you unit targets multiple units, all attacks against one unit must be resolved before move, resolving attacks against the next. So you can't do the, I'm going to put two weapons against this target, one weapon against this target. Okay, against the two weapon target, I'm going to resolve weapon one, then I'm going to switch to the other unit, then I'm going to re- switch to unit two. Can't do that. Doesn't work that way. So again, just, and again, I'm pretty sure that's how people were playing it, but again, clarified, spelled out, bullet pointed, very clear. Yeah. Um, can't shoot while you're within engagement range of any enemy units. And again, watch for that five inch verticality. That is going, I think people, that is one of those things that's going to catch people up. He's realizing that if somebody gets too close and they're on the second floor and you're on the first or on the ground floor, you know, if there's the less than five inches separating you two, you can't shoot at them. So Keep that in mind. Big guns never tire. This is the change to monsters and vehicles, that monsters and vehicles can shoot ranged weapons, even if within engagement range of enemy units. We've talked about this before. And you can target other units, but you can't resolve those attacks until everything else around you is, you know, within engagement range is dead. Uh, you do subtract one from hit rolls when they fire heavy weapons against enemy, enemy units within their engagement range. Uh, look out, sir. I think we talked about Lookout Sir last time with the, th- basically you have to have a character within three inches of a friendly unit, which is either a monster, a vehicle, or a three up, or a unit with three or more models in it. Characters that are out on their own can just get shot without any penalty. And again, that only applies to characters with nine or fewer wounds. So Magnus can still get shot. No, Magnus can get shot all day long. But a demon prince cannot, because they only have nine wounds. Unless they're out by themselves. Yeah, ignore enemy... So two demon princes next to each other would also not protect each other. Um, ranged weapon types. Most of these are the same. Uh, assault weapons, you can fire if they advance, and you're minus one to hit if the unit advanced. Rapid fire, double the number of attacks if you're in half range. Grenades, one only one model per unit can use a grenade. These are all the same. Pistols, uh, you can shoot if you're in engagement range, but you can't shoot a pistol and anything else. Heavy weapons changed slightly. Now, part of it, the change is you only suffer the minus one to hit if you are infantry, which is why power of the machine spirit is going to have to change because that used to be the, what power of the machine spirit did is you could move and fire heavy weapons without penalty. There's one other slight change to heavy. As heavy weapons used to say, if a model with heavy with a heavy weapon moved in its preceding movement phase, you must subtract one from any hit rolls made while firing the weapon this turn. 
that was so like you could move the rest, like you could reposition the rest of your unit, but that heavy weapons guy stands still. He doesn't have any penalty to hit. Heavy weapons now say subtract one from hit rolls if the firing model is infantry and its unit has moved this turn. Interesting. So if your unit repositions and heavy weapons guy stays in place, his unit still moved. So he still has a penalty. Again, minor change, but it'll catch people up. Uh, blast weapons. Um, we've talked about that. Uh, the if the more models that are in a unit, the more minimum number of shot or number of successful or not successful shots, but the minimum number of attacks can come up on random weapon dice. So uh, if it's a unit of six to ten models, always makes a minimum of three attacks. Blast weapons, target unit, have 11 or more models. Uh, don't roll dice. You just get maximum number of attacks. And you can never use them against models in your engagement range. So uh, weapons that have become blast can't be fired close combat. And there's a very large list that we'll get to in the second half. I won't read all of it. It's like 140-some weapons. Uh, making attacks. They have spelled out very clearly the entire process for making attacks, and this works for both ranged and melee weapons. Uh, most of it is the same, although there are there are a few small changes. Some of them we knew about, like hit rolls. Uh, hit rolls modifiers cap at plus or minus one, and that is determined. That cap comes into play after you have worked all the modifiers together. So I know we were talking an episode or so back about. Like something that always added one to, was it, I think it was, was it a custodes ability from War of the Spider? But it was something where it's like you basically would ignore like most penalties, like the, the mm-hmm. plus one would counter. That plus one is not applied after the cap. It is part of the calculation to determine if you need to cap it out. So if you have that plus one, but then there's like you're fighting against an Alatok flyer they're they're still going to have a minus two, so you would still end up at a minus one because it would all work into the calculation, and then you would cap it at minus one or plus one. I I like this change a lot because as we've talked about before, like dice probabilities on a d six, like there's only so many results you can get, and then being able to shift those up one, two, three, depending on how you stack modifiers is is huge it, that completely shifts the probabilities around whereas now like limiting it now you you you've really capped how much you can change it which i i like a lot yeah but at, but at the same time like those those alatok flyers they still actually kind of do something if your opponent has positive modifiers yeah absolutely you just, yeah you still have to have more negatives than they have positives but yeah right yeah, you still get a, a benefit, which is good. It kind of goes to the more than, equal than, less than dynamic that we've kind of already got for other things in the game. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Uh, also, one other change is, uh, much like orcs, unmodified hit rolls of six always hit. So, daka, 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 not as special, but you'll still get your double your double shots. And unmodified ones always miss. But the unmodified sixes also takes care of that. Well, you know, even if they had a ton of modifiers, you can you'll you'll never be in a position where you can't hit. You've always got a chance. So it makes games a little still it, it improves the interactivity. Yes. You're, you're never going to be locked out of being able to do something. OK, when it says how is that 
Uh, six succeeds worded exactly. An unmodified hit roll of six always scores a hit. Okay. And so that is just for hits. That is for hits. Okay. So seven plus saves, there's still seven plus saves. Yes. Okay. And then wound rolls have, yeah, the wound chart is the same. Twice or more is a two, and the toughness is a two up. Strength greater than the toughness is three up, equals four up. Lower than the toughness is five up. Half or less is the is six up. Also, wound rolls have the same modifier cap as hit rolls. So if somebody's got, uh, got an effect that would make you minus two to wound, it caps at minus one. And unmodified wound rolls of sixes always wound and unmodified wound rolls of one always fail. So again, you always have a chance to hit something. You always have a chance to wound something. It may not be great, but you will never be completely locked out from being able to damage something. You may be locked out from being able to save it, but you'll never be locked out from being able to wound it. Then we get to allocating the attack. So hit roll. So you rolled a hit, you rolled a wound. Then... You, you take the number, like, you take, okay, so this attack wounded, then you pass things off to the defending player. If an attack successfully wounds the target, the player commanding the target unit allocates that attack to one model in the target unit. This can be to any model in the unit and does not have to be allocated to a model that is within range of or visible to the attacking model. That's still consistent with how we've done things before. However, if a model in the target unit has already lost any wounds, th- we're familiar with that or has already had attacks allocated to it this phase. The attack must be allocated to that model. Now, for most model, for most units, this will not matter, but for units where you have, like, mixed equipment, such as assault th- terminators, where you've got uh, one guy with a storm shield and, like, four guys with lightning claws, for example, or, uh, like, wolfen, where you've got a guy with a, a storm shield and then everybody else has, like, dual frost claws, something like that. Let's say you have two units shooting at that unit. The first unit is firing. Let's let's go with terminators. I like terminators in this example. Uh, I'm shooting at a unit of terminators, and one unit I have just has bolt guns. Well, the two up armor is going to be better than the three up invulnerable save. And I decide, you know what? I don't want to risk losing my storm shield guy to bolter fire. So I'm going to put one of the lightning claw guys. I'm going to say he's going to take the wounds. All the bolt, you fire all the bolt guns. Let's say he shrugs them all off. Then the next guy fires a las cannon at him. Well, las cannon's got like AP minus four. I definitely want to put that, you know, yeah, I've got a five up invuln, but I definitely want to put it on the storm shield. Too bad. Lightning claw guy has already volunteered to take the wounds this phase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So he's going to take a last cannon to the face. Yeah, because previous, in 8th edition, it was like by wound pool. Yep. And now it's by phase. Yep. So, yeah, the minute you start taking, the minute you decide this guy is the is the one who's taking hits, congratulations, he is taking hits until he's dead. Or until we switch to the fight phase. So, it again, it's a minor change, it's a small change, I think is going to trip a few people up and it really only affects a few units in the game, but it is something you absolutely need to be aware of because you will, it will change who you decide to take wounds in a, in a mixed unit situation. Um, saving throws are pretty much the same. Uh, you, you apply the AP to the saving row, uh, saving throw roll. 
And that's where we get into that one-up save possibility because of the mo- the you can't roll less than one. So we'll see what happens with that when we get our, our day zero <laughs> FAQ. Uh, unmodified saving rolls of one always fail, which is why even if you have a one-up armor save somehow, you will always fail on natural ones. And then inflict damage is pretty much the same. This is all spelled out in bullet points. But the fact that like this is the standard attack flow, which also means like um, with uh, like Tau Shield drones, they'll easily be able to say, okay, here is the point in the attack chart where in the attack flow where you will break off and handles the shield drone ability, which they did in the most recent errata. This just makes that even more clear. So you can say like, oh yeah, after step two, like we can, you can allocate the attack to the shield drone and then ends that the attack process. Uh, They do specify uh, invulnerable saves, which are never uh, modified by acting uh, attacking weapons AP. You can always use to use an invulnerable save and to instead of its normal save. Mortal wounds work exactly the same way as they did before. No saving throws. Spill over in a way that damage doesn't. Uh, They do specify that uh, if an attack inflicts mortal wounds in addition to normal damage, you always resolve the normal damage first. Yeah. So, so like, if you have a sniper who shoots at a unit of, you know, at a a multi-model unit the sniper round might sp- the the more and you roll a 6 to wound the mortal wound could spill over onto the next guy and if any if an ability modifies the damage inflicted by a weapon and that model can inflict mortal that weapon can inflict mortal wounds in addition to the normal damage the modifier does not apply to any mortal wounds that are inflicted so if you had an attack that did two mortal wounds and two regular and somebody had abilities like oh i only take half damage no you take half the normal damage you'll take the full two mortal so mortal wounds, I think, are even a little bit deadlier than they were before. Um, ignoring wounds, they specify some models have abilities that give them a chance to ignore wounds. You can never use more than one of those rules at a time, you know, on a particular wound. Which, again, I think is pretty much how they've FAQ'd it in the past and played it, but again, spelled out very clearly in the rules. Charge phase! So we've, we have finished the shooting phase, now we move on to the charge phase. Charge phase has two... Two sub-phases, one is charges, two is heroic intervention. So no more like, well, am I done with the charge phase or not? No, it's like once you are done with charges, then you progress to heroic intervention step. Charging is primarily the same. However, and I think we mentioned this last episode, if you decide to multi-charge, you have to end up with at least one model in engagement range of everything you charged. And you also make sure your unit's charge roll must be sufficient to be able to end its move in unit coherency. So again, you can't stretch, you can't have a blob and then stretch out a line, you know, in assault if it leaves, like, if a 10-man unit leaves, like, one person out on his lonesome. If this is possible, then the charge is successful and models in the unit make a charge move so as to fulfill the above conditions. If it's impossible, the charge fails. No models in the charging unit move this phase. Like so, the main difference there is, uh, you have you can't multi charge, you can't multi declare charges, and then just go for, eh, just go for this one, and that's especially important in a game where you can't Overwatch with everybody. Yeah. Um, also, charging over terrain, you can you ignore uh, terrain features of an inch or lesser height, just as a normal movement. 
You can't move through taller terrain features, but you can climb up and down them. So you have to take that movement into your charge range allotment. And that also applies when flying. Flying units can move over other models when they make a charge move and ignore them. But when you move over terrain, including buildings, which buildings are like fortifications that you take, you move like any other model, which means if you fly and you do a charge move, you have to have, you have to work that vertical distance into your charge range. So if there's a build, like a, a ruin between you and the unit, you have to figure how, like, you have to, like, I go over this far, up, back down, and then over again. Which makes sense. Like, if my jetpack can take me so far, I have to be able to clear the building mm-hmm. to get into charge. And then finally, Overwatch. We talked about Overwatch uh, in a previous episode. It functions the same way, except you don't automatically get to do it. You have to have a rule that allows it or spend a CP on a stratagem to do it. Unless you're awesome. Unless you're awesome or Tau, because Tau have been FAQ'd to still have that ability. And that's the one unit FAQ we know about, or the one army army update that we know about for sure. All right, then we get to the fight phase. Fight phase is mostly the same, but there's one, one major change that is really going to mess with people. So, again, you alternate starting units. Uh, when a unit fights, piles in, makes its close combat attacks, and then consolidates... Um, charging units fight first. So you always select charging units first. Again, this is all the same as 8th edition. You fight, do all your combat attacks. You pile in, move three inches, move. You must end up closer to the nearest enemy model. Which models fight is the big change here. It used to be you had a model that was within an, you could fight with everybody that was within an inch of an enemy model and with everybody who was within an inch of a unit or of a model that was within an inch of an enemy model which let you kind of get a lot... You could get a lot of people into an assault. Now, it's... If you're within engagement range, you can fight. So, one inch horizontally, five inches vertically. Or, a model can fight is if it is within a half inch of another model from their own unit that it was within a half inch of an enemy unit. Yeah, and I know... I, I saw a thing earlier that was like, okay, this kind of ruins a bunch of movement trays that people had made. Yep. Because they're spaced out more than a half inch. Yep. Mm, that sucks. Well, I mean, it it is, it is a, like, again, it's one of those changes, like, this is theoretically a, a relatively small change. You could easily lose it while going through these rules, but it's a major shift. Oh, for anyone who's doing Horde Assault, I'm trying to think of, like, 30 demonettes, you'll never get 30 demonettes into combat. No, uh, you'll get, if you're lucky, you'll get 20. And that's depending on how big the, the target unit's footprint is. And right. which does leave you in kind of like a, fir- almost like a first wave, second wave feel to combat. Yeah. Except for then the fact that a squ- like, if I had like a squad of 30 demonettes versus a squad of 30, um, Astra Militarum guys with guns, they will all get to shoot if I'm in the range. I mean, technically, I get to all melee if I'm in that half inch plus half inch range. But right, it's just there. There's a huge advantage on shooting. But it, I mean, it makes sense fluff wise because if you can't actually physically get up there, you're not going to be able to swing. It's just you're going to have to probably not use as many hordes. I, I think for 40k players, it's it's going to be a big shift. Whereas people who have played Age of Sigmar will probably be already kind of used to this because in Age of Sigmar, like every weapon has its own reach 
and you actually have to be able to like every model like if a weapon has a one inch reach if you can't get within it if an inch of an enemy model you just don't get any attacks with it and i think this is kind of their way of having a general reach and it makes sense that like if let's say you've got space marines who are on 32 mil bases the front guy only has to have reach of an inch but in eighth edition the guy in the back theoretically had like a three to four inch reach Right. Because he only had to be in, like, the base is larger than an inch, and he had to be within an inch of a guy who was within an inch. So it's like, some, like, how is this guy, like, does he have his chainsword on a string and is swinging it around? So now it makes it like, yeah, you really have to be pushed in. It also means if you are fighting between floors of a building, only the people who are closest and actually still within that five-inch, you know, one-inch-wide, five-inch-high cylinder will actually get their attacks in. So, yeah, it makes sense, but it's going to be a big shift for people. And again, yeah, and especially like Horde players, which has left some people feeling like, wait a minute, Ninth Edition was supposed to be our edition for Assault. It's like, well, yes, but also no. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to benefit like elite Assault units Mm -hmm. more than than, like your Hordes. Because there's a couple other rules that we'll talk about later that I think also will impact Hordes. Well, and blast weapons, for example, are also it's like this is I, I've seen a number of people and I have to say I kind of agree that this is a, a very MSU friendly edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually resolving combat is pretty much the same. You select your targets, select your weapon, apl- do your co- close combat attacks. You resolve everything that has the same profile before you move on to the next weapon. And then you consolidate three inches and end up closer to the nearest enemy model. All the same. Uh, and then hero- and we also talked about heroic interventions. They are basically the same, except heroic interventions also have a five-inch uh, verticality. So basically, every 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 range in the game has, as far as like close interaction, imagine has a five-inch cylinder, which is not like GW has finally kind of brought that idea because. Like games like War Machine and Infinity and such have always had that concept of you control a certain amount of vertical space as well, and it's a little abstract, but here it you know it's kind of consistent throughout. So that was the fight phase. Fight phase functions primarily the same. And then we get to the morale phase. This one is quite different. So first off, morale test. Starting with the player whose turn is taking place, players alternate selecting units from their army that have had models destroyed this turn. So spelling out that it is a back-and-forth process. If no units on the battlefield need to take a morale test, progress to the unit coherency check step of the morale phase. So again, broken into two sub-phases. Morale tests. You take a morale test to you roll 1d6 and add the number of models from this unit that have been destroyed this turn. Sounds pretty much the same. If the result is equal to or less than the highest leadership characteristic in the unit, the morale test is passed and nothing else happens. An unmodified one uh, roll of one also always passes, irrespective of the total result. In any other case, the morale test has failed. One model flees that unit. So it's not however many models that you lost, you know, however much you lost the roll by, you lose that many, you lose one. However, then you have to make a combat attrition test. Uh, you decide which model the unit flees. The model is removed from play. It counts as having been destroyed, but it never triggers any rules that are used when a model is destroyed. So, like, you can't reanimate protocol the guy that ran away back. 
Uh, combat attrition test. If unit fails a morale test, then after the first model has fled the unit, you must take a combat attrition test. You roll a D6 for each remaining model in the unit, so kind of like if your, tr- if your transport explodes. And if the unit is below half strength, you subtract one from the roll, so it gets worse if the unit is smaller. For each result of one, one additional model flees the unit. You decide which models from your unit flee. Those models are removed from play. Again, don't trigger any effects that uh, would be triggered when a model is destroyed. So they, like, they give an example. Student needs to make a morale test for his unit's Skatari Rangers. The unit started the battle with 10 models and is led by Ranger Alpha with a leadership characteristic of 7. Five models are destroyed in this unit this turn. Uh, so Stu rolls a d6, gets a 4, and adds 5 to the result. The result of 9 is greater than the unit's leadership. So the morale test has failed. One model in the unit flees and is removed. Stu now needs to take combat attrition tests for the remaining four models in his unit. Stu rolls a 1, 2, 5, and 6. As the unit is now below half strength, he subtracts one from each of these rolls. Final results mean that two additional models flee the unit and are also removed. So losing morale by a lot is no longer the death sentence for a a unit the way it was in the past. The death sentence is going to be the combat attrition test part. Right, but you're like they're not guaranteed losses the way they were in the past. If you're already weak, yes. If you're already weak, you're in a bad position, which is kind of how it should be. Right. So I I think morale is is different, and it has it has the, the it has the potential to be worse, but it also has the potential to be better for you because like you could just roll all ones and everybody runs away after losing the one model. Or you could roll really well and nobody else breaks, even if you lost like lost by 10, which this is actually like hordes could actually absorb a lot of losses and then like not have a bunch of people roll away. That is true. Yeah. I'm just also wondering, which we'll see, I guess, in in day zero facts and stuff, how this will play out with things that affect fear and and whatnot that normally just used to go against leadership or, or morale tests. Will we have stuff affect the combat attrition test now as well? Yeah, that's something that I've seen Night Lords players bringing up, uh, Drukari players bringing up, that, like, this is actually suddenly not as good for them with this, the way this is ruled. Because, like, the big thing was, like, hey, if I have, like, three Night Lords units within three inches of this enemy unit, well, they're three leadership down. That You know, that's, like, three more guys that might run, that are likely to run. Now it's, like, well, we're likely to make one guy run. Yeah, that's why I'm hoping it would be like if it's something like that bad, just a minus one to the combat attrition test would then be like, hey, you're always going to lose a third. Yeah, I mean that, or yeah, if just or like whatever penalties they have, have it apply to both, just consistently, because yeah. that would make night lords really scary. Because like, hey, there's three units of night lords on you. Guess what? You're running away. <laughs> So, yeah, we'll see how this ends up playing out. And again, like as you said, a lot of this is going to come to faction FAQs and, and see how this works. But I, like I said, I do like that it's not automatically a death sentence for, for larger units. And then we get to unit coherency, and now we'll talk about why dog bones are bad. So unit coherency. Uh, you, each player must now remove models one at a time from any of the units in their armies that are no longer in unit coherency. So when a unit falls out of coherency, you do not get to fix the unit. You do not get to move them back into coherency on your next turn or at the next opportunity. If they are out of coherency, models start going away. Uh, until only a single group of models from the unit remains in play and in unit coherency. Uh, and this is based on unit coherency dis- defined on page four, you know, wherever it's defined in your core rulebook. 
Uh, the models removed count as having been destroyed, never trigger any result, any rules that are used when a model is destroyed. Models removed because of this do not cause their units to take another morale test. But that is why the dog bone is bad, because if you have a line of guys, and then the little triangle of three on each side, well, you're going to have to decide who you remove. If you remove somebody from the middle, then that entire line is going to collapse until you are down to one squad of three. Yeah, so you just always pull from Or one. no, one squad of six, uh, one squad of five. Because right. once you are below six models, then that requirement never, doesn't fall into play. If you remove somebody from the dog bone, like from the, the knob end, same thing because somebody's no longer going to be in range of two models. And again, mm-hmm. the whole line will collapse. True. So, yeah, it's like long lines in this game are now very bad ideas. <laughs> and most of the, mo- the armies that can make and most of the units that can make those long lines tend to be very vulnerable <laughs> units. They, they tend to die pretty easily. Because I'm thinking like conscripts, crute, uh, plague bears are probably the best one as far as resilience, and even they'll die easily. Like cultists, things like that. Cult, yeah, it's like you can't stretch out lines and like try to claim two objectives or things like that. It's it you're gonna die, and like it's a bad idea. You want to run as blobs, not lines. And that's that's the core rules right there. That is everything from. Like the, all the the pregame definitions to you know the all, through all the phases of the game, there is also a section in here about missions. And while these are not like they have one sample mission here, which is pretty basic, and I would say not representative of the missions that are in like the the match play section, um, there is one thing I think is important to mention, and that is objective markers and objective secured. These are specified as advanced rules. Uh, objective markers are now officially 40 millimeter round markers. <laughs> it's what everyone's been using up to now, but now GW is even saying, yes, that is the size of an objective marker. No more of these. Oh, look at these six little weird shaped coins that we've put in the collector's edition that aren't useful for anything else. <laughs> yeah. Did, weren't your Harlequin ones like diamond shaped? I think the Eldar were oblong runes. Uh-huh. Um, Tau ones were like 25 mil little metal coins. And then I remember a time when people incur- it was encouraged to like make your own and it didn't really have any specifications. I think the last make your own and put it on display did say 40 mil bases. Yeah. So or or like that kit that they sold that was, you know, like, "Ooh, look, here's a tank with a gene stealer like spine in it and like the little like emergency drop pod evacuation thing and like those were They're supposed all to be different obje- sizes those yeah. would be object supposed to be objectives but those were all super weird like shapes and and sizes <laughs> yeah they, they were weird so now it's like objective markers are very specific a model is in range of an objective marker if it was within three inches horizontally and five inches vertically so it's no longer a three inch bubble it's a five inch high cylinder and uh, when measuring distances to and from objective markers, always measure to and from the closest part of the objective marker. You are measuring from the edge, not the center. Has no one actually measured from the center. <laughs> uh, objective markers controlled by players with most models are in range. That's the same. Aircraft and fortifications cannot control objective markers. Again, that, that was clarified in previous FAQs. It is now just a codified rule. And then objective secured... 
is, you know, some units have an ability called objective secured, which means that's one thing that's going to be FAQ'd is all those rules that are named like this differently, but function the same are just going to be called objective secured now. Cause that's what we've all been calling it anyway. That's nice. <laughs> like, I really wish they had just clarified explodes as a standard rule and they do mention it on the transports, but at least here we have a, a stage like, yeah, it's objective secured. Everybody does it. And yeah, it is the same. Players control the objective marker. If any of their models in range have this ability, if two units, ha- two competing units have that ability, then you go back to number of models. So, which we all know how objective secured works, but it's just like, yeah, they just put it in the core rule book, in the core rules, because it's the same. And then they have, like I said, a generic mission in here, which is actually not terrible. You set up uh, objective markers on the table. Uh, you get a victory point uh, for Slay the Warlord. You get a victory point at the end of each player's command phase. Uh, that player uh, gains a point for each objective marker they currently control. So it's got a little bit of a progressive play, progressive scoring in it, and then a point for Slay the Warlord. And then you play, uh, you end the battle after end the battle after either one side is wiped out or the fifth battle round has ended. And more about that when we get to the. You get the second half of the show. But, you know, it's a pretty basic stock mission, although I do also find it interesting that it is fought hammer and anvil style from short edges rather than across long edges. And they do, you know, have the minimum battlefield size recommendations, but again, you can use whatever size you want for these. Uh, let's see, once you, and this one, because it's for open play and technically not battle-forged armies, everybody gets this one warlord trait. You pick a model, a character to be your warlord, and they all get the same warlord trait, which is plus one leadership within six inches. So, congratulations, we have just gone through the core rules of ninth edition. How are you guys feeling so far about it? I like there's more to know. Yeah, it, it feels, it doesn't feel complete, does it? No, I mean, it feels like... Here's your, your your base circle of things. Well, well, you'll have to add more to get the complete picture. Yeah, and and what gets me about the core rules here is in the core rule book, like there, like in the eighth edition book, you had like the core rules, and then like you didn't get to anything else until you got to like match play, and that's when they covered battle forged armies and stratagems and things like that. I think they had a little bit of it in narrative play because those missions would have stratagems as well. But it's like there's this big disconnect between the core rules and then what they can consider advanced rules. In this core rule book, they like you get that only war mission and then they go right into building an army. And it's like I would think those are core rules too, <laughs> but apparently not. So uh Uh, But we'll talk about that in the second half. So we're going to take a quick break for sponsor identification. Uh, And when we come back, we'll be talking about all the rules you didn't get in that core rule PDF. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. 
Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it is time for part two of our coverage of the ninth edition rulebook. And uh, let's get right into those rules that don't get included in the core rules. Uh, so we're going to start right off. This is at page 240 of the core book, or at least of the fancy special edition that was in Indominus with the pretty red and, bl- red and whitish blue cover. Building an army. Uh, they talk about power rating. Uh, power rating is basically a quick measure of a unit's efficacy. Uh, and they talk about understrength units having the same power rating as a minimum sized unit. They define what an understrength unit is when you have fewer models than the minimum sized unit. Uh, power levels, army, army's power levels, the sum of all power ratings in an army. But then they also talk about like uh, points values are more detailed. Uh, we also officially have a term for the sergeant equivalent in any unit. It is now called a unit champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's nice. I, I don't think it's referred to anywhere else, but we at least have a consistent terminology for it. Reinforcement points. This is a sidebar under advanced rules. So again, I don't know why build, if building an army is not considered an advanced rule, there's an advanced rule in the advanced rules, I guess. What? Reinforcement points. Uh, some rules allow you to add new units to your army during the battle or else replace units that have been destroyed. If you are playing a game that uses a points limit, then you must set aside some of your points in order to use these rules. These are your reinforcement points. Each time a unit is added to your army during the battle, subtract the points of that unit from the pool of reinforcement points. We all know this. This is all the same. Sometimes a rule will allow you to add extra models to an existing unit from your army during the battle, unless otherwise stated, and so we'll have to see if this gets updated for things like Poxwalkers. Adding these models does not cost any reinforcement points. So if a model, if a unit grows over the course of a battle, it may not cost you anything, but it also does say unless otherwise stated. So we'll see what that means for units that do have means to grow. And they don't, they specify, or they don't specify like just replacing lost units. They just say anytime you would add units, it doesn't cost you any points or it doesn't cost you point. It only costs you points if you go over the starting strength, which starting strength is defined earlier in the rules. So they could have easily said that and they didn't. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, then we get a, a show of somebody's Dark Angels army. And then we moved into, on page 244, Battleforged armies. 
we know what battleforged armies are. They're units, all an army where all your units are in detachments. An unbound army is an army that is not battleforged. Battleforged armies have pools of command points to spend. Unbound armies do not. Battleforged armies receive a battleforged CP bonus every turn in the command phase. We already covered that. Uh, command points. We have talked about this in a previous episode. Uh, the number of command points you start with depends on the size of the battle. Everybody gets the same number. Uh, gaining and refunding command points. Uh, several rules give you a chance to gain and refund command points when you or your opponent either use a stratagem or spend CPs to use a stratagem. Each player can only gain or have refunded a total of one CP per battle round is the result of such rules, regardless of the source and CPs that are spent on stratagems that are not used during a phase, such as those used before the battle or at the end of the battle round, can never be refunded. The limit of gaining or refunding one CP per battle round does not apply to the battleforged CP bonus a player gains at the start of their command phase before doing anything else, or to any CPs gained by mission special rules that instruct players to gain CPs in their command phase. So, like, even if you have a rule that says, oh, you spent three, like, I spent three CP on this stratagem, I get to roll a D6 for each CP I spent, you can still only get one back. So, this is basically what was FAQ'd uh, about a year or so ago, but it is now clarified as part of the core rules. Mm -hmm. uh, factions, units, faction is important when building a battleforged army. Most attachments require all units in them to be from the same faction. Army faction is all the units in your army having this at least one faction keyword in common. Uh, example, Imperium or Chaos. Do not think Battle Brothers is going away. That will be mentioned later. This is just kind of an in-general Battleforged requirement. Uh, detachments. The size of game determines the number of detachments you're allowed to use. So a combat patrol, which is up to 50 power level or up to 500 points, you can have one detachment. It doesn't specify what kind of detachment that is. That comes later. Uh, incursion, which is up to 1,000 points or 100 power level. That is two detachments. Strike Force, which is your up to your 2,000-point game or 200 power level. That is three detachments. And Onslaught, which is up to 3,000 points, is four detachments. That is a hard cap regardless of if you're playing narrative or uh, matched play. Uh, units must fit into detachments. To include a detachment in your army, you must pay the CPs specified. We talked about this in a previous episode when they revealed it, and we'll talk about how much those cost. Detachment abilities. Each codex lists a set of abilities that units in a detachment gain if every unit in the detachment is from a specified faction. Units in auxiliary support detachments, super heavy auxiliary detachments, and fortification network detachments never gain any detachment abilities, even if every unit in that detachment is from this faction specified. So, if you splash in one Imperial Knight in a super heavy auxiliary, it does not get a household trait. Or it does not gain any abilities from that household trait. Which I think they specified that in that codex, but that is now an across-the-board rule. Which also means that uh, the Taunar I like to splash into my uh, Tau army would not get the actual Tau Sept trait. Right, unless you built more, unless you build it, you know, a different way, put it in somewhere else. Yeah, I'd have to put it in like a, a full super heavy detachment with either two more Taunar, which there's not enough points, or like two Storm Surges, in which case that'd be the army and still might not be enough points. <laughs> you could still take one, it just wouldn't get that extra benefit. Yeah. Uh, reinforcement units. If a unit is ever added to a battleforged army during the battle, such as through, like, they don't specify here, but such as, like, through demonic summoning or something like that, 
Uh, it is never considered to be part of a detachment. It means it never costs CPs to include them in your army, but they never benefit from any detachment abilities. Which, again, I think is somewhere that something they clarified in past FAQs, but it's now here in the core rules. Um, battlefield rule slots, classic force organization chart stuff. Nothing new here. Uh, dedicated transports, you cannot exceed the number of infantry units you have. I think we mentioned that in the last episode. And so here are your here are your detachments. Uh, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven de- possible detachments. The patrol detachment, battalion detachment, and brigade detachments are pretty much the same as they were before. Uh, they cost two CP, three CP, and four CP respectively. However, if your warlord is part of that that detachment, you get those CP back effectively. So like. Your patrol detachment costs you two, but if your warlord's in that detachment, you get two back. Uh, battalion is three and three. Brigade is four and four. And I believe they did a faction focus on Drukari that talked about how, like, if you take three patrol detachments, you still get something like four CP back. So, like, you it ends up being like a wash or close to it. I think it was, which goes along with them taking three patrol detachments as opposed to, like, a brigade type thing. Mm-hmm. Right, so they still will function the same way as they did before, more or less, which is good. Vanguard, Spearhead, and Outrider Detachments, the layout of them is the same. However, they all cost you 3 CP to take with no refund option. Okay, one thing I do want to point out on all of these, Rob, is the restrictions to them. They must all be in the same faction, and the detachment cannot include any understrength units. Right, so even though we got talked about understrength units on the points section two pages earlier... Yeah, you can't splash them in here. Right. And then the last four, uh, one of these has changed significantly, and that is the Supreme Command Detachment. The Supreme Command Detachment now has one HQ or Lord of War slot. It costs you no CP. However, you can only include one Supreme Command Detachment in your army. This detachment can include... can only include... One, Primarch, Demon Primarch, or Supreme Commander unit, and this unit must be selected as your Warlord. However, uh, the command benefit is, if your ha- army has any Brigade detachments, you get 4 CP, 3 CP back if you have any Battalions, 2 CP if you t- include any Patrols. So, if you want to splash in a Primarch, like if you want Bobby G, or you want Mortarian, or whatever gets classified as a Supreme Commander... Mm-hmm. you can do that in a Supreme Ge- Command Detachment without penalizing you for not fitting one into uh, a like a battalion, for example, if you're playing like a 2,000-point game. So like if you want to have Bobby G, who is a Lord of War, you can still have him, even though the, the battalion has no Lord of War slot, you can take Bobby G and still get your command points back. So I like that. I, I do like that. But without having the, I'm going to have all the characters in my Supreme Command detachment and a Lord of War. Oh, and an Elite. Sure, why not? Yeah. The Supreme Command detachment was pretty cheesy, so I'm glad they made the change. Yes, it will. I mean, it helped some armies because it was needed for, like, I will say Eldar and Warlocks helped for, like, all the little demon prince not princes, heralds. The things that you used to have multiple per HQ slot, that's what the Supreme Command used to help. So I'm curious as to how those will play out, because as is, I can't really run that many Heralds unless they 
move heralds into like the leader of a unit or they could potentially come up with like detachments you know specific for factions as well that would be interesting or if they cue them to say like hey if you if you are playing an entire if you have a detachment dedicated to like one chaos god you can include up to three heralds without taking any for any four sword Mm -hmm. charge spots okay yeah that would also going back to old old fifth six ed stuff yeah i mean well we'll just have to see or you know if or maybe people have kind of moved on from taking that many heralds. We'll see. You know, it may, it may just be an adjustment to army building. Yeah, it's adjust. It's kind of interesting because, like as we mentioned earlier, the the game definitely I think is going to shift more to like an MSU model. But they're also shifting away from kind of hero hammer, which is interesting. Like it's going to be small units, but it's going to be mostly units. Yeah, because things like because like with the changes like lookout sir and such single characters just running up and trying to hit things are kind of in a bad place. Right. You you don't want to do that. And by cutting down on how many characters you can slot in, I think you're more likely to see more care, more of the elite characters than you are HQ characters. If any, you know, people are going to take those. Yeah, I agree. It's just, I'm, I'm curious as how like armies that needed a lot of aura buffs to kind of enhance them are going to play out in this. Right. Um, let's see. Then we've got the super heavy detachment, which is three to five Lords of War. Um, it costs you either three CP or six CP. Uh, if you spend only three, then you cannot include any Titanic units. So that would be for taking like armagers. And they actually did a uh, faction focus on chaos knights and chaos knights over the last couple of weeks. And on the chaos knights one, they did specify how that's going to work. With uh, the, okay, so this was the other faction that has been FAQ'd that we know. Uh, Traitorous Lances, for example, for Chaos Knights. Change the last sentence to read If your Warlord has the Chaos Knights keyword, Chaos Knights super heavy detachments in your army gain the following command benefits. Select one of the following plus three command points if your Warlord is part of this detachment, plus six command points if your Warlord is part of this detachment and has the Titanic keyword. Oh, so, nice. so you can take a super heavy detachment and not be penalized CP if you are playing a Knight's army. Yeah, that makes sense. It does, but it is faction specific. So, like Imperial Guard, don't get to like take three Bane Blades, right? Or my Eldar could not take three Wraith Knights without it costing a lot, right? Then there's the super heavy auxiliary detachment, which costs you three CP. It's one Lord of War, no restrictions, no command benefits. It just the benefit is you can splash in a Lord of War. Fortification network costs you one CP. It's one to three fortifications. You can only include one fortification network detachment in your army. Your warlord can't be part of it, so your warlord cannot be a building, which Aww. is good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and the command benefit, though, is plus one command point if every unit in this detachment is from the same faction, and that faction is the same as your warlord's detachment. So if you want to put in, like, a, a webway portal, you can do that, and you will get the one CP back as long as you're playing Eldari. Okay, I like that. Not something I would expect, but I like it. Makes you have faction specific fortifications kind of be something you feel good to splash in. Well, maybe not good, but able to splash in. And I think they're rolling out more of those because yeah. uh, they they've teased a few models, such as uh, something that was revealed in here, and they they because of leaks they had to show it on their website was Space Marines get a new fortification called was it the Hammerfall Hammerfall Drop Turret. Yeah, drop bunker. 
Yeah, which is basically like a bunker with a bunch of flamers and then a whirlwind launcher on top. What? Oh my. And we know Necrons are getting a new uh, fortification as well. So I think we're going to see fortifications for this uh, almost kind of end up in the same spot as like faction-specific endless spells for like Age of Sigmar, where they're going to, like, you're going to be encouraged to take fortifications, but preferably your faction ones. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're starting to roll out more faction-specific fortifications. So you got the Webway Portal, the Nolanth Crown for Chaos. The Sisters got the the Battle or Battle the, Sanctum, whatever. Yeah, it's the called. Battle Sanctum. Uh, the Tau um, have had the the Tidewall line for yeah. a while now. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll see if I can get the Webway Portal to work in this edition because it didn't really work for me too well last edition. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to see if they FAQ how the Webway Portal is going to interact with the strategic reserves. Right. Right. And then finally, you've got your auxiliary support detachment. This can include only one unit. It can be pretty much anything except a Lord of War or a fortification, and it costs you two CP, and it does not have restrictions on understrength units, which is kind of what it was before, except in like in the past, it cost you what? It was like one CP to take that. Yeah. Now it costs you two, but everything costs you CP at this point, so. And then we get to page, uh, we get a overview of uh, Matt Huston's Thousand Sons, and then we get to page 254, which is Stratagems. Uh, Stratagems, to use a stratagem, you must pay the CP specified. Same stratagem cannot be used more than once during the same phase, so that is now a universal rule, not just a match play one. Mm -hmm. And strats do not use during a battle round are exempt from this limit, so you can use as many before the battle, you know, copies of a before the battle one as you want, as long as you have CP for it. And as long as they say you can, because I've seen some that are before the battle that now specify can only be used once. Right, right. Um, using And they even specify that unbound armies don't get CP, but if you had an ability that let you gain CP during the battle, like if you had a relic or if you had like the, the tally man who like, hey, whenever you or one well, of no, the tally man is only when you use stratagems. But anyway, if you had some way to get CP during the game, even an unbound army can use them. Although it would pretty much be limited to the generic ones because I think you have to have stratagems and warlords or you have to have mm-hmm. detachments and warlords to unlock those. But the generic ones are in here. There are only seven, which is less than I thought they would have. I, th- I thought they would add a couple more, but it is it is just seven. Uh, the uh, prepared positions one that they added to give you cover if you go second is gone. It was not brought over into ninth edition. And some of these we have talked about before. Some of them are... are oldies but like command reroll has changed quite a bit and if you are familiar with kill team you'll be very familiar with how this one works so for one cp use the stratagem after you have made a hit roll a wound roll a damage roll a saving throw an advance roll a charge roll a psychic test a deny the witch test or you have rolled the dice to determine the number of attacks made by a weapon reroll that roll test or saving throw this is no longer reroll any one die and it also means like, hey, if I rolled a charge and I rolled a six and a one, I'm just going to re-roll that one. No, you re-roll the entire charge roll. So more restrictive and less finicky, I guess. Yeah, I like having it explained better. Like just limit and also limiting it like will help speed the game up because yeah. it's only on specific things. So you only have to think about it as specific. True. It does also mean that for my sisters, running Celestine is no longer nearly as safe because I can't, sa- I can't bank a CP 
to roll re-roll her uh, miraculous resurrection. Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah, it's like if I roll a one, she dead. Nothing I can do about it. Only have two, not three. But Gemini also oh. can. Already That's do. what miracle dice are for. True. Uh no, miracle dice you are can only be used for certain things. Oh, fair enough. Mi- miracle dice have similar restrictions. So. So they, they've kind of locked down what – and also gets rid of, of some of the confusion because there was always that argument back and forth e- even like as – you know, within the last few months of, well, no, you can – I can spend a, a command point to reroll one part of the charge roll. No, you have to re- reroll the whole thing. No, it just says I reroll a die. A charge roll is two dice, so I can reroll one of them. Now it's just like, no, you reroll the charge roll. Yeah. You don't like what you got, reroll the whole thing. Cut them down. We've talked about that one. That's the one where when an enemy unit falls back, you get to roll a d6 for each model from your army that's within uh, engagement range of that enemy unit. And for every six, the unit suffers a mortal wound. So again, falling back is that much riskier. And the fact that you get a CP every turn means theoretically your opponent, unless they have burned through all their CP and before you get to the point where you could fall back, uh, they should always have that available to do to you. Uh, Desperate Breakout is... Uh, did we talk about this one last episode about breaking out of tri-pointing? Yeah, I think we talked about it a little bit, but this seems like it's de- like there's more here. So I think we should still probably go over it. Okay. So this one is use the stratagem in your movement phase. Select one unit from your army that has not been selected to move this phase and which is in the en- engagement range with at least one enemy unit. Roll a d6 for each model in the unit for each result of one. A model in that unit of your choice is destroyed. Assuming the unit was not destroyed, it can now fall attempt to fall back. And when doing so, it's moved... Models can be moved across enemy models as if they were not there. So basically, as almost as though it could fly. Mm-hmm. And then any model in that unit that ends its fallback move within engagement range of any enemy model is destroyed. And then assuming the unit is not destroyed, it cannot do anything else this turn. Cannot attempt to manifest psychic powers, shoot, declare a charge, be selected to fight, etc. Even if it has a rule that it would allow it to do so after falling back. So like if you try point an Ultramarines unit you can basically, they they could choose to fall back, but then they would lose the ability to fall back and shoot that they get. Yeah. I think that's going to be, I think it's super useful because you're in a, you're in a position at least where you're, it's a lot harder to completely hem a unit in where they can't do anything. Right. And now it does cost you two CP to do that. So it it's one of those things like you, try pointing is now no longer a solid lockdown, but it does force your opponent to make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's what any good tactical gameplay should be about is, can you make your opponent make bad decisions? Well, and it's it's kind of interesting. I was watching a uh, uh, a ninth edition game that's, I think, Mini Wargaming was put up on YouTube yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the guy actually who won the game actually won because he used this stratagem to, instead of falling back out of engagement range, use this stratagem move six inches and get on an objective. Oh, which I thought was kind of, which was kind of an interesting use of it. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's neat to have that in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. Uh, Emergency disembarkation. This is now a stratagem instead of a thing that just happens for vehicles as it was in, in previous editions. Uh, you, one CP, use the stratagem when a transport model from your army is destroyed. All units that are embarked within the model can be set up wholly within six inches of the destroyed model when they disembark, instead of the normal three inches before the model itself is removed from the battlefield. The reason this matters is, if somebody surrounds your transport and does not leave you room to move through them, you can still get out. These units are not affected by the destroyed model's explodes ability or equivalent. Instead, you must roll 1d6 for each model you just set up on the battlefield. Instead of one 
model being that disembarked your choice disembarked your choice being destroyed for each roll of one, one model that disembarked your choice is destroyed for each roll of one or two. And just like with other, you can't uh, declare a charge or heroically intervene out of that. Again, I like it that it gives you the ability to do something. It's risky because, you know, you're going to lose a third of the unit on average. But uh, yeah, like you, you it, it at least gives players uh, the feeling that you're not completely like stuck. Yeah, and I think that's that's the the thing I'm seeing over and over in this edition between like the changes to like modifiers and the changes to like shooting and wounding always hitting on sixes. The game is is set up now so you should you should very rarely if ever be left with no options whatsoever. You should yeah. always have the ability to do something. Your opponent cannot completely lock you down. It just may be harder. It may cost you resources, but you should be able to if you are a smart player, you should be able to at least do something. Well, crap. I mean, it's good for most <laughs> players. Okay, passable player. How about how about there? There you go, Kevin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Any player should have an option to do something. There you yeah. go. <laughs> um, fire Overwatch. We knew this one. It's a one CP to fire Overwatch. Unless you're Tal, you just get to do it for free because we're awesome. Counteroffensive is the same as it was before. After an enemy unit is fought, you can select one of your units to fight. And Insane Bravery uh, is auto-pass morale test. And again, the same. Both of those cost 2 CP. Those did not change. Next up, a brand new segment that we don't have any equivalent of in the 8th edition rulebook. That is Strategic Reserves. Um, so Strategic Reserves, you can only place units into Strategic Reserves if it's a battle-forged army. Uh, before the battle, you basically spend CP to put so many units into strategic reserve, and it is based on their total power rating. So, 1 to 9 costs you 1, 10 to 19 costs you 2, 20 to 29 costs you 3, and so on and so forth. Uh, they arrive at, in the reinforcement step of the movement phase. Strategic reserve units cannot arrive the first battle round. Where on the battlefield a strategic reserve unit is set up when it arrives depends on the battle round in which it arrives. Starting from the second battle round, uh, you can arrive from any battlefield edge within, you can, you have to be within whole, wholly within six inches from any battlefield edge that is not your opponent's battlefield edge. And what your opponent's battlefield edge is clearly spelled out on every mission deployment map. But you, you can basically outflank on rink on, uh, turn two. Uh, you can't be set up within nine inches of any enemy models. The only exception to this is when, if they're being set up within an inch of their own battlefield edge and wholly within their own deployment zone, in which case they can be set up within nine inches and even within engagement range of enemy models, which means you cannot know, you can no longer crew wall the back of somebody's deployment zone. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's probably good for the game though. If the unit is set up with an engagement range of any enemy models, it counts as having made a charge move this turn. Overwatch attacks cannot be made against this unit. And until the end of the turn, it can target any unit it's within engagement range uh, of with close combat attacks, even though it hasn't declared a charge this turn. <laughs> if the model is so large, it cannot physically be set up wholly within six inches of the battlefield edge, i.e. the smallest dimension of the model is greater than six inches. So, for example, my town are. It must be set up so that it is touching your battlefield edge. During the turn in which such a model is set up on the battlefield, the mo model's unit cannot do any of the following. Make a normal move, advance, fall back, remain stationary, 
You can't uh, attempt to manifest or deny psychic powers, make any attacks with ranged weapons, declare a charge, perform a heroic intervention, perform any attacks or psychic actions. So it just gets there. It just gets there. So, like, for example, if a guard player wanted to uh, put a Bane Blade into Strategic Reserve, yeah, it's just going to show up round two and not do anything else. Uh, All the rules that apply to your reinforcement units when they are set up also apply to your strategic reserve units when they are set up as described in the reinforcement step of the movement phase. For example, strategic reserve units cannot make a normal move, nor can they advance, fall back, or remain stationary in the turn they arrive, but uh, they can otherwise act normally, shoot, charge, fight, etc. Which means you can show up in reserves and then charge, (laughs) which, hey, striking scorpions just got more useful. (laughs) And then on battle round three or more, on the third battle round, you can be set up wholly within six inches of any battlefield edge. Okay, so so here's the difference. So second turn, you can't show up on your opponent's battlefield edge. You also can't show up in their deployment zone. Third round, you can show up in the deployment zone, just not their battlefield edge. So you can't you can't come in from behind them. And so that that's pretty much strategic reserves. So you can. Basically, every unit can do that. You just have to pay CP for them ahead of time. But they don't get to necessarily deep strike the way other units do. Right. And this is only, like you said, Rob, for the units that don't have their own rules to come in a different way. Right. Gives you a way to kind of do that yourself. Yeah, they do specify. Note that these rules do not apply to units that are using other rules that enable them to start the battlefield in a location other than the battlefield. Such units are not placed in strategic reserves, which means you don't have to pay extra CP for them. You just pay... Like if like if you had a strat for like like demons have a strat that allowed them to or Eldar, for example, the Webway Assault, you don't have to pay the strategic reserve cost and the cost of that stratagem. It's one or the other. And then they also have a sidebar of advanced rules for aircraft and strategic reserves. And this is basically kind of something I think we've talked about before. Aircraft can fly off the table and then basically deep strike back in. And if an army is battleforged and an aircraft cannot make its minimum move, it is placed into strategic reserve. So basically it just represents the plane flying off and up and then coming back down somewhere else. However, they, you know, airplanes can still 360 no scope, just like right. everybody, just like every other unit. <laughs> um, then we talk about actions, which come into play in certain missions. Uh, some rules let a unit perform an action. This represents the unit doing all manner of things, ranging from raising banner arming or dismantling traps, searching an objective site, hacking into a data terminal, and so on. Uh, Each action will specify when a unit can start to perform it, when it is completed, any other conditions that must be satisfied. For example, some actions can only be attempted by units that are at specific locations on the battlefield. Uh, You can declare a unit from your army will start to perform an action provided there are no enemy units within engagement range, excluding aircraft, and it did not advance or fall back this turn. So you can't Like, if an objective, like, let's say you have something that lets you do an action during your shooting phase at an objective, you can't advance your way to the objective and then start it. You have to move up normally. Uh, Aircraft units and units with the fortification battlefield role cannot perform actions, so no, your building cannot raise a banner. Uh (laughs) Uh, A unit can only attempt to perform one action per battle round, and the same action cannot be started by more than one unit from your army in the same battle round. So if you have, let's say, raise the banners at, and you have units at two objectives, pick one, because they can't both do it. If a unit is destroyed, makes a normal move, advances, falls back, attempts to manifest a psychic power, declares a charge, performs a heroic intervention, or makes any attacks with ranged weapons after it has started to perform an action, but uh, before the action is completed, that action has failed. 
Otherwise, that action is successfully completed. A character unit cannot use any aura abilities while it is performing an action. If the action has failed, their aura abilities immediately take effect again. Hmm. So your characters that have buff bubbles, you can't just send them out to do object do actions and let everyone still benefit from them. I like that. And then they do specify there are also psychic actions, which work much the same way. You can't uh, perform a psychic action if you fell back, just like you can't cast psychic powers if you fell back. You can attempt to perform one psychic action instead of attempting to manifest any psychic powers. You have to do a psychic test. Uh, if you double run or double six, you suffer perils from the warp, just as normal. And if your opponent has a psyker within 24 inches, you can attempt to deny the witch the psychic action. So it's basically like a non-power power. And they do have warp charge ratings, so you'll have to like pass a psychic test as normal. Although usually they're really, they're like, like the one I've seen was like warp charge four. So it's like really easy to do. Mm-hmm. But also at least this with the psychic action, it's not as restrictive as the normal action. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not like considered a subset of other actions. You, cause it only really happens during the psychic phase. Yeah. It's a subset of a psychic. Yep. All right. Now we completely change paths and we are on page 260. And now we're talking terrain features. Terrain is now classified as one of four types. There are hills. Hills are considered to be part of the battlefield rather than a terrain feature. Move, models move over hills using normal rules for, mo- for movement. Uh, use normal rules to determine if the model behind a vi- hill is visible. Hills cannot be attacked. <laughs> I mean, uh, sure, I guess. Man, Kevin, remember when we made all those hills way back in the day? Oh, yeah, I still have all of them. <laughs> But yeah, hills basically never have traits, never do it. Like, well, I guess they could have traits. Do they have eyes? Sometimes. I mean, if you want to put eyes on them, I imagine some <laughs> demon worlds, the hills do indeed have eyes. Uh, obstacles. Obstacles include barricades, ruined walls, and other battlefield debris that your models have to move over or around. Models can move up, over, and down obstacles following normal rules of movement. And remember, if they're an inch or less in height, you just move through them. A model on or behind an obstacle uses normal rules for determining uh, if another model is visible to it or if it's visible to another model. Obstacles cannot be chosen as the target of an attack. An infantry beast, sw- infantry beast or swarm model receives the benefit of cover from an obstacle while it's within three inches of that terrain feature unless when you resolve an attack that targets the model's unit, you can draw straight lines one millimeter in thickness to every part of that model's base from a single point of the attacking model's base without any of the lines passing over or through any part of this terrain feature. So, for example, let's say you have a unit that's hiding behind, like, an Aegis defense line. You get the benefit of cover if any line you draw between between the attacking unit and the, t- the target model, if any of it passes through that piece of terrain, like the actual physical model, then they get covered. But if you came around to the side, they would not get covered. It's pretty clear, but they do spell it out there. Now, they say they gain the benefit of cover. That doesn't mean they gain cover. <laughs> it just means if the piece of terrain had a trait that provided cover, they would get the benefit. It's just basically clarifying when do they get the benefit versus when do they not. Or if the unit had a rule that said while they have cover, they get something else. And I imagine we're going to see a lot of units get FAQ'd to interact differently with the new types of cover they have. But as long as you're within three inches of the... So, like, you don't have to be right behind the Aegis defense line as long as you're within three inches of the Aegis defense line and 
you can draw a line through it. You would get the benefit. Um, Area Terrain is back, and there was much rejoicing. Yay! Yay. <laughs> no, it's seriously, though, it's nice to have terrain defined as Area Terrain, and they specify Area Terrain has a footprint. The footprint is the boundary of the terrain feature at ground level. So you can have forests that are area terrain as long as you mark this is where the forest starts and ends. Built like ruins are have area terrain that you have to define. This is the section of the building that is on the ground floor. So those of us who have made terrain in the past with bases on it, congratulations. We just saved ourselves a lot of work by having already done it. Yay. Newer pieces <laughs> of terrain that GW has put out don't necessarily have bases and you'll have to define what the footprint is on them. So just be aware of that. Models move over area terrain using normal rules for movement. Uh, use normal rules to determine if the model behind the terrain is visible. You cannot attack area terrain. You cannot blow up the ruins any more than they already are. And if you are within the area terrain, infantry, beast, and swarm models receive the benefit of cover while they're within it. You'll notice they do not say... You get the benefit of cover if you're, like, toe-in, or, like, if, if you're a vehicle and you're, you're within the terrain. Vehicles just don't. And then buildings are referring to things that, like, fortifications that have the building keyword. Uh, buildings are considered to be units rather than terrain features. They, you, models cannot move across buildings. Models use normal rules to determine if models behind buildings are visible. Enemy buildings can be attacked. So you can blow up a bash, an Imperial Bastion, for example. Okay. Although you can't move across one, which makes I'll have makes me wonder, like, can you land a unit on top of one? Like, if you had a like a unit of Raptors, could you land on top of an Imperial Bastion? Mm. Or could you even move, land your own friendly units on top of it? I, I'll have. We'll have to see how they update. Well, the it says buildings are buildings are considered to be units rather than terrain features, and you can't be within engagement range of an enemy unit. Yeah, so you couldn't get on top of it. Yeah, so there you go. Ha <laughs> ha! Math or rules? I don't know. Rules lawyered. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if it's a unit, yeah, you can't. Which means you couldn't enter. Yeah. No, you couldn't enter one. Nope. It's yep. They're saying like buildings are like. Immovable vehicles. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but they can be attacked, so you you can you could charge one and try to tear it down, but you couldn't go inside it. Immovable vehicles. Yep. Also, it's going to be interesting to see how that works with things like the Fortress of Redemption, which specifically had like walkways that you could put models on. I guess you just won't put them on there. They'll just be inside the building the whole time. Probably. All right, so now we get to the actual terrain traits. Now, terrain traits can be applied to various pieces of terrain, and they do give some examples on, like, what common terrain features are. Uh, but there's basically about two pages of these. There is defensible. Um, this is the one where uh, any if every model in an infantry unit is on or in an area terrain feature with this trait, it can either hold steady or set to defend. Uh, if you hold steady... Yeah, if every infantry model is within three inches of an obstacle terrain feature with a straight, then it can either hold steady. Okay, so that they they have this paragraph twice. It's weird. So it says if every model in an infantry unit is on or in an area terrain, or if every model. Okay, sorry, area terrain you have to be on or in it. Obstacles that are defensible you have to be within three inches of it. Same as gaining cover, unless you can go around them. Uh, let's see, unit can if a unit. 
hold steady. Any Overwatch attacks made by the unit of this phase score hits on five or more. Uh, so you still have to spend the CP or have a rule that gives you Overwatch, but you'll hit on fives. If a unit sets to defend, it cannot fire Overwatch this phase, but you add one to hit rolls when resolving attacks made with melee weapons. So if you're like Corn Berserkers, fuck Overwatch. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut some people when they get to me. Hell yeah. Uh, defense line is a terrain trait. Uh, you can make a charge move against a unit within an inch of this terrain feature, and you can fight within two inches of the enemy. So Aegis Defense Line will have the defense line trait. Uh, breachable. Uh, infantry, beasts, and swarm units can move through the, the walls, girders, chains, and foliage of this terrain feature without impediments. So that's what, like, how you could move through ruins without any penalty if you were infantry. It Ruins have the breachable trait. Difficult ground makes a return. If a unit makes a no- normal move, advances, falls back, or makes a charge move, and any of its models wish to move over any part of this terrain feature... Subtract two inches from the maximum distance that every model in the unit can move, even if every part of the strain feature is an inch or less in height. This penalty does not apply if every unit in the move, every model in the moving unit can fly. So the minute one model has to cross through difficult terrain, it slows the entire unit down. Uh, dense cover. This one had people scratching their heads for quite a bit because it is wordy. Dense cover. Ahem. <clears throat> If this train feature is at least three inches in height, then subtract one from the hit roll, hit roll when resolving an attack with a ranged weapon unless you can draw straight lines one millimeter in thickness to every part of at least one model's base or hull in the target unit from a single point on the attacking model's base or hull without any of those lines passing over or through any part of this train feature with this trait. Models that are on or within an area terrain feature with this trait do not suffer this penalty if the only terrain feature these lines pass over or through is the terrain feature that the attacking model is on or within. Models within three inches of the obstacle terrain feature with this trait do not suffer the penalty if the only terrain feature these lines pass over or through is the terrain feature that the attacking model is within three inches of. The height of a terrain feature is measured from the highest point on the terrain feature. Models do not suffer this penalty to their hit rolls when making an attack with a ranged weapon that targets an aircraft unit or a unit that includes any models of the wounds characteristic of 18 or more, even if this terrain feature is between it and the firing model. Note that the reverse is not true. This confused a lot of people because they're like, so why is it so wordy? Why is it so who gets the benefit? Do I have to be in the terrain or not? Dense cover just basically says if you have a piece of terrain that is considered dense cover and any ranged attack would cross that piece of, de- of dense cover and the piece of terrain is three inches or tall, taller, subtract one to hit. The only cases where it doesn't is if you're inside the terrain. It's like if you're inside the terrain or right next to the obstacle and it's the only thing you cross through, which is basically like the old ideas of if you were an area train and firing out, you didn't suffer any penalty. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have anything like it in 8th edition, so people are kind of having to recalibrate their brains to it a bit. Yeah, it's 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 definitely wordy, but, you know, I, I think once, we, once people start playing with these rules, I think they're going to make a lot of sense. Right, and the, the bullet points, I think, which was something that the original explanation did not have, kind of helps this. Subtract one from hit rolls made for ranged weapons of at least three inches tall. Does not apply to models that are only shooting through their own terrain feature. No penalty when shooting at aircraft or units with wound characteristics of 18+. plus. So, your Imperial Knight, it doesn't matter if they're standing behind some, some dense trees. You can still see them and shoot them without penalty. 
Uh, unstable position. Models cannot be set up or end to move on top of this terrain feature. They can move up and over and down this terrain feature, but they cannot end to move on top of it. Exposed position. Models do not receive benefit of cover while on top of this terrain feature. So you can specify, like, I think, uh, Imperial containers. Like, armored containers have exposed position. If you stand on top of one, you don't get cover. Lame. <laughs> Obscuring. This is the one. If the train feature is at least five inches in height, then models cannot see through or over this train feature. It works a lot like dense cover, except it just says it breaks line of sight rather than causing a penalty to hit. Uh, however, models that are on or within the train feature can be seen and targeted normally, except for the aircraft and 18 wound plus models. So somebody in, in ruins can shoot out and be shot at, but you can't shoot through ruins to somebody who's on the other side. Uh, light cover, plus one to saving throws against ranged weapons, uh, but invulnerable saves are unaffected, and that's if you're receiving ben the benefits of cover. So to receive the benefits of cover, to get light cover, you have to both get the benefits of cover, which means you can only be infantry, beast, or swarm. Uh, heavy cover is plus one saving throws against melee weapons, unless you made a charge move this turn. Scalable, uh, only infantry, beasts, and swarm models and models that can fly can be set up or end to move on top of an obstacles terrain feature with this trait or on the upper floors of area terrain. Other models can be set up or end to move on the ground floor. Infantry beast swarm models can move through the floor, ceilings, and gantries of the strain feature without impediment. And then finally, inspiring. Add one to the leadership characteristic of units while they are wholly within six inches of the strain feature. If the train feature lists any keywords in brackets, then it only applies to units that have the keywords. So you can have inspiring chaos, inspiring imperium, inspiring necrons, inspiring orcs. And then common terrain features. So, for example, ruins. Ruins are area terrain with scalable, meaning you can climb it. Breachable. Infantry can move through it. Light cover. Defensible and obscuring. Craters. Area terrain that have light cover and difficult ground. Uh, armor armored containers. Obstacles with light cover, scalable, and exposed position. So, if you're partially behind the armor armored container, you get cover. If you're on top of it, you don't. Uh, barricades and fuel pipes, uh, obstacles, they have defense lines, so you can attack within range of them, uh, light cover and heavy cover, defensible, unstable position, you can't stand on top of the pipe, and uh, difficult ground, if you cross over the pipe, it subtracts from your movement. Woods, area terrain, dense cover, breachable, defensible, difficult ground. Uh, battlefield debris, obstacles with exposed position, so... If you stand on top of battlefield debris, you don't get cover. An industrial structure, area terrain with scalable, breachable, dense cover, and defensible. Imperial statuary is an obstacle with light cover, unstable position. Don't stand on top of the statue, please. And inspiring Imperium. <laughs> and then ruined walls, obstacles with defense line, breachable, dense cover, defensible, and unstable position. So... I mean, that covers like 90% of what you're going to see on tables, most likely. And that covers pretty much all the different types of GW trains yes. put out. Yeah, and they, they show pictures of, like, they're all using, like, standard GW train. But it's like, I'm so glad to have area terrain back. 
And I love the trait system because it means like, okay, all of these things like that have unstable position or defensible or dense cover, they all work the same way. There's no more of this. Well, forests act like this, but ruins act like this, but craters act like this. No, it's just like, it's a crater. It's an area train that gives you light cover and is difficult ground. Woods are difficult ground. Pipes are difficult ground. Ruins are not difficult ground. But you could make a ruin if you wanted to, like for a narrative, that like this piece of terrain is difficult ground because I gave it the difficult ground trait. Mm-hmm. I think it's just going to take a little while for people to learn the traits and then apply that in their head to what ones have which ones. Yeah, but again, having it clarified and consistent oh, yeah. will go a long way. It's just a learning process. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think like when you're at like events, I think that they'll probably need to define yes what this is as part of the mission pack. But I think that's fine. I like the, I like the rules of the availability of these rules. So I like I think it's a good system. I think they could define it as part of the mission pack if it was like standardized terrain on each table. Yes, yeah. But the smaller ones, or like sometimes where even ours, where we've got some other loose pieces, we're probably going to have to put like a sheet on each table saying, here's the train features. Here's what they are. Here's the rules for them. Yeah. Yeah. But also having like the most common ones like ruins. Okay. Well, everyone knows a ruin looks like, you know, even though like there are ruins made by either kit bashed or official kits or made by third party makers. You can just say, yeah, these are considered ruins. Use the rule on page 264. And like ruins, craters, armored containers, forests woods actually having a purpose again is really nice because they provide uh dense cover yeah. so they actually give you penalties to be shot at yeah just have to make sure you have enough tree type models well you don't know you just it's area train you just define yeah. the area it because the I mean, it's yeah. a little bit more abstract it's just like as long as one of the trees is three inches tall right. it's dense I mean, cover at least trees there that are three or five inches tall for them right but most of our most of them are, I think. Yeah, and three inches is not that hard to reach. Yeah, and and the good thing about this, since it is defined as area terrain, like you put, like we have a bunch of the little felt cutouts for our forest, whatever. You put that there. You put a three inch tree on it. And boom! This whole area is forest. So, yeah. Have, again, having trees do something is nice. I missed that in the right. last edition. <laughs> And they give some, they give a number of example battlefields. So for example, like they, like, uh, the strike force battlefield with an ideal number and mixture of terrain features. And they say earlier on, uh, they recommend like one piece of terrain per square foot. Even if that piece of terrain is just like some, uh, you know, like a couple of armor, like containers or a piece of wall or something. It doesn't have to be like a ruin every square foot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The placement of the train creates a battlefield that does not give advantage to one player over another, making it well-suited for a typical match play game. While the battlefield uses lots of Sector Imperialis train features, by bearing in mind concepts discussed above, you can achieve the same gaming experience using different kinds of terrain features. They have another one that ha- they show another one has like, this has fewer terrain features set up. And they showed this on their website on the Warhammer community page uh, a couple of weeks back, it's the same illustration saying this one's got a little less terrain, but it's still pretty balanced. It doesn't favor one side or one type of army over another. But then they also like they show one where it's like, hey, here's a strike force battlefield. It has an ideal number and mixture of terrain features because it's got like 
six buildings and like two sets of uh, armored containers and several pipes. But the largest area terrain features have been set up along the two long battlefield edges, while the middle of the battlefield only has a scattering of obstacles to provide any sort of shelter from enemy fire. While the battlefield is not ideal for match play, it would make for a very thematic setup for a narrative play game. So, like, yeah, if the middle of the table is clear, it's not a balanced game. <laughs> but then they have one like this strike. Be it, this strike force battlefield is very similar to the one above in the term of numbers and types of terrain features, but they've been set up more evenly across the battlefield. And the middle contains terrain features that block visibility from one side of the battlefield to the other. So, like, yeah, have line of sight blockers in the middle. <laughs> Well, and I, I just I like that as a good example because it's literally them going, here's the same pieces. Here's how you can set them up correctly. Here's how you can set them up incorrectly. Do it this way. Like I, that's that's a good visual thing because those are the exact same pieces in on in both pictures, just mm-hmm. rearranged differently. And and they're right. That first tabletop is is a you know it's a death field, but the second one is like a fun balanced field for a game. So. I, don't know, I think it's just good to show some of those examples. Right. Or they show like this incursion battlefield has an, an ideal number of, and mixture of terrain features. They're evenly spaced. There's you know, room for units to maneuver around them. Lines of fire can't easily be drawn from one edge to the other, but then they show another one that has similar, but uses more pipes and like, and has them arranged differently. And it's like, this one's been set up with fewer terrain features has still been set up as to not give advantage to one player over the other but a battlefield with fewer terrain features than this will give units no way to protect themselves from ranged attacks. So it'll feature, sh- it'll favor shooting armies over assault armies. So they're really trying to encourage you, like, think about how armies are going to play across this. And they, but they even have an example, like, here's one with some buildings on the edge and then a, a container in the middle surrounded by pipes. And they're like, it's got a great thema- theme to it. It's not good for match play, but it'd be great for narrative. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, encouraging both sides of that is is good. You know, kind of saying like, hey, these are good narrative setups. Not great for matched play and balanced play, but fun, great for setting up a particular battle that you want to have. Right. And that is the end of the uh, the extended core rules, I would say. Because then after this, we get into open play and matched play and then narrative. Narrative, I want to cover in its own episode, because I think Crusade is a big enough topic, and it's got like 50 pages of content in the rule book. <laughs> like, narrative play was not given short shrift in this. So, uh, I do want to mention, I, I do want to kind of do that another time. But match play, I think, is important because a lot of people are used to match play, and and that is kind of like, it's it's both the standard for tournament play and for pickup games. So I think it's worth talking about the ex- the Eternal War mission pack. Now, we're not going to talk about every mission because there's 18 of them, but they do work more or less the same. So, for example, for Eternal War missions, there's some changes to army building. Uh, first, you select the battle size that you wish to play, and that's going to determine which missions you can choose from. So we're mostly going to look, let's say we're going to look at the Strike Force missions, the 2,000 point level, because that's what most people are used to playing. And keep in mind, 2,000 points is not going to go as far as it used to. I think some people have been looking at some of the leaked point values and have found that armies, on average, are about 15% more expensive point-wise. Like, I'm seeing people are like, yeah, this army used to be 1,700 points, and it's now, like, 1990-something. So, imagine 
running with maybe about like six sevenths of your old army at 2000 points. So you have to pick and choose a little bit more judiciously. Uh, muster armies, uh, eternal war is based on points. There's no, no power level listed. You it's based on points limits. Um, details on how to battle forge an army can be found on page 244. How to use a points limit can be found in 241. Details of how to select a warlord and what information your army roster must contain can be found on pages 238 and 251, respectively. You cannot include any understrength units in your army. All units in each detachment of your battlefield army must have at least one faction keyword in common, and this keyword cannot be Chaos, Imperium, Eldari, Inari, or Tyranids unless the detachment in question is a fortification network. This has no effect on your army faction. If you are playing combat patrol, the only detachment your army can include is one patrol detachment unless your army faction is Imperial Knights or Chaos Knights, in which case the only detachment your army can include is one super heavy detachment. If either player has access to any stratagems that are used before the battle that upgrade units, these must be used now, and the details of these upgrades noted on the player's army roster. Each player must then provide a copy of the army roster for their opponent to read through. So you do not get to pick your upgrade stratagems at the time of battle. They have to be in your army list. I, I like that. I It does remove some tactical flexibility, but it also skirts some shenanigans where you're just picking things based off of your off your opponent and off of their list. Like you have to kind of come more prepared. And then as we saw with like the assassins, there are ways to be able to change it, but it's all in the pregame and it all costs command points. So, right. Um, then they also specify in a little side box with the exception of units from the troops or dedicated transport battlefield rules roles or units that are added to your army during that battle that cost reinforcement points. Each player can only include the same data sheet in their army three times. For the purposes of this restriction, the Demon Prince, Demon Prince of Chaos, Demon Prince of Nurgle, and Demon Prince of Zinch datasheets are all considered to be the same datasheet. In addition, if by deleting the word Cult or Brood Brothers from a datasheet's title in the Codex Gene Stealer Cults, it would match the title of a datasheet from Codex Astra Militarum, then for the purposes of this restriction, those datasheets are considered to be the same. Again, this was eroded a while back. They have now made it officially part of the core rules. I like it. Step three is determine the mission. Players determine which mission they will be used for that will be used for the battle. They choose missions based on chosen battle side. This will determine the deployment map that the players use as well as the mission specific the specific mission briefing. So you do not roll for there is no separate role for uh, detachment style. It is based purely on the mission, which is the same way as Age as that Age of Sigmar does it. Now, if you have something like the open war deck, then it won't be. It'll be a little bit more flexible but for eternal war match play missions the mission determines the deployment zone um four read the mission briefing read the rules read what your mission does and how to score it i mean that that should be common sense but they've specified it as a step uh some missions may include one or more secondary objectives the players can choose to select during the select secondary objective step some will also list one or more mission rules that apply for the duration of the battle players should read and familiarize themselves with these before proceeding uh, five, place objective markers. The players now set objective markers up on the battlefield. Each mission's deployment map will show the players how many to set up and where each should be placed. Uh, this is sounding more and more like the ITC battle setup, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It really does. I mean, part of me misses being able to place your objective markers, but I think that's more narrative. It's more important to have it placed. Match play, probably fixed placement is better. Yeah, I, yeah. Th I think it's more balanced that really if it's if it's placed independently of who's playing. 
it's more balanced and it speeds things up. So you're not wasting, you know, 15 minutes during setup going through all these steps. It's <laughs> everything's here. It's good. You're got, you know, and you're ready to go. Yep. Uh, place of, uh, so place objective marker six, create the battlefield. The players now create the battlefield and set up terrain features. Missions are played on rectangular battlefields. Size of battlefield depends on the battle size. We knew that. Unless other, noted otherwise, when setting up terrain features, use the guidelines detailed on pages 266 to 269. Terrain features cannot be set up on top of objective markers. Players must use this battlefield terrain rules for terrain features as described on pages 260 to 265. Which means, technically, you place the objectives before you would put down mm -hmm. ruins, which means an objective should not be in a ruin or any piece of area terrain. Yeah. I, I like that. that that's... That helps kind of clarify some things. Right. Now we'll see if the Grand Tournament 2020 packet that comes as part of Chapter Approved will have that same restriction, but as is, not not in this. Uh, secondary objectives. Each player then secretly selects three secondary objectives for the battle and writes them down. Each can award victory points to the player who chose them. The secondary objectives uh, that players can choose from are found on pages 284 to 285, though some missions... We'll include secondary objectives the players can also choose from. Once both players have selected their secondary objectives, they reveal them to their opponent. This sounds more and more like ITC all the time. <laughs> uh, determine attacker and defender. Players roll off, and the winner determines who will be attacker and who will be defender. Very chapter-approved 2019 -y. Choose deployment zone. The defender now selects one of the deployment zones for their army. Opponent uses the other deployment zone. 10. Declare, uh, declare reserves and transports. These missions use strategic reserves rules. Both players now secretly note down on their army roster which of the units in their army will start the battle in strategic reserves, which of their units will start the battlefield in a location other than the battlefield. Uh, if a player has access to any stratagems that enable them to set up units from their army in a location other than the battlefield, they must use such stratagems now. And which of their units will start the battle embarked within transports? They must declare what units are embarked on what model. When both players have done so, they declare their selections to their opponent. No more than half the total of number total number of units in your army can be strategic reserve and or reinforcement units. And the combined points value of all your strategic reserve and reinforcement units, including those embarked within transport models that are strategic reserve or reinforcement units, must be less than half your army's total points value, even if every unit in your army has an ability that would let them set up elsewhere. Isn't that new? I thought... Trans people in transports did count towards what you had. I guess now they don't. If the transports put in reserve, is oh, basically what okay, that means. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if the transports put in reserve, then you include the point value of the okay. units All on right. them. I yeah. misread it. <laughs> yeah. So if you start with a, a unit in a transport on the table, that counts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In Eternal War missions, strategic reserve and reinforcement units can never arrive on the battlefield in the first battle round. Any strategic reserve or reinforcement unit that has not arrived on the battlefield by the end of the third battle round counts as having been destroyed, uh, as do, do any units embarked within them. This does not apply to units that are placed into strategic reserves after the first battle round has started. So if somebody goes back in, like or an aircraft, for example. Deploy armies. The players alternate setting up their remaining units one at a time, starting with the defender. So we are now back to alternating deployments. Players' models must be set up wholly within their deployment zone. If one player finishes deploying all their units, the opponent then deploys the remainder of their units. If a model from your army is so large that it cannot physically be set up within wholly within your deployment zone, it must be set up so that it's touching your battlefield edge. So again, like if your deployment zone can't fit in a Taunar or a Titan or what have you. 
then uh, in the first battle round, it it's just like if it arrived from reserves. It can't do anything first turn. Mm-hmm. If the unit has a minimum move characteristic, it counts as having moved its maximum move characteristic. If both players have units with abilities that allow them to be set up after both armies have been deployed, the players must roll off after all other units have been set up and alternating set up these units starting with the winner. So if you have infiltrators, everything gets deployed first, and then you then you roll off to see who places uh, infiltrators first, and then continue to alternate. Uh, determine first turn. Players roll off. The winner declares whether they will take the first or second turn. There is no seizing. Seize is gone. There's also like no modifiers to that roll. It's just nope. a roll. Yeah, it's just it doesn't matter who who finished deploying first or anything. It doesn't matter who's attacker, who's defender. It's just a straight roll off. Uh, then resolve pre-battle abilities. Players alternate resolving any pre-battle abilities that y- units in their army may have and resolving any stratagems that are used before the battle, excluding those that upgrade their units, because you use those in army building, or those that enable them to set up a unit in a location other than the battlefield, because you did that before deployment. Starting with the player who will take the first turn. So, these are now broken into, instead of being in this nebulous before the battle, at least in match play, they very clearly spell out in these Eternal War missions, okay, here's when you use your upgrades. Here's when you use your reserves ones. Here's when you use everything else. And then begin the battle. First battle round begins. Players continue to resolve battle rounds until the battle ends. 15, ending the battle. Battle ends after five battle rounds have been completed. If one player has no models remaining in their army at the start of their turn, the other player may continue to play out their turns until the battle ends. So when you if you table somebody, you get to play the rest of the game and see if you can score more points. And there's no rolling to see if you go to six or seven anymore. You go five rounds and that's it. Yeah. And that is consistent with what we saw in the only war mission. It goes five rounds or until somebody is tabled. Now, there's a sidebar here, ending the battle early or conceding. And I think this one's also going to be a little bit controversial. Uh, ideally, a battle should always be played until the end. On occasion, though, one or both players may not be able or may not wish to complete the battle. If you and your opponent both agree to end the battle early, then you can end the battle at a mutually agreed point we suggest at the end of the battle round. You and your opponent can then calculate your final victory point totals, taking into account any objectives achieved to determine the victor. If only one player wishes to end the battle early, then that player must concede and remove all their models from the battlefield. A player who concedes scores zero victory points for the battle, and their opponent is automatically the victor even if they scored zero victory points during the battle. The other player may continue to play out their turns until the battle ends if they wish, perhaps to accrue a few more victory points, or they can choose to end the battle now. I have never liked conceding and getting an automatic goose egg. I, I don't don't care for it. I, I don't either, but I also understand... Like, it basically says, like, if the player... The, because there's the rule up there above that says if the players agree to end the game early, then it just ends and you get your points. Basically, yeah. if one player decides that I'm done and rage quits, fuck them, they get a zero. Yeah, but I could also see see it being used the other way, where it's like, if somebody plays the game... Like, they play out a game and it's a tight... You know, it's a, a tightly fought out game, but it's like we're now at the point where it's very clear who's going to win. Like, I'm down mm-hmm. to like one unit who's like way over across the table and has no opportunity to score any more points. And we're on round four. Like, we could look at it and say, I, you know, like, if if you're a decent human being, you could say, you want to call it now because there's no way I can win. You Score your points yeah. for turn five and we'll go. Yeah. But there's enough people who play tournament play that are dicks. 
they'll be like, oh, you're conceding. You'll take the, you'll take your zero. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, there's going to have to be like some level of like professional etiquette and stuff involved, but yeah, I don't know. Like if, if that case where you want to call it early and your opponent doesn't want to just play out the last round. It's like it, there's only five rounds. Like it's, I don't know. I, yeah, it's I, like yeah. I, I see your point for like, yeah, somebody rage quits. Yeah, they should get a zero. That's fine. fine. I'm just worried that this is one of those things that could be weaponized. Yeah, be, no, that's, by, that's by less than scrupulous players. And they are out there and you know it. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think that's a fair concern. And who knows? There might be something in the uh, in chapter approved for the grand tournament pack that changes that, you know, for tournament right. play or something. So. And then finally, determine the victor. And this is another one that has become controversial. And I think you, and I think you're possibly targeted, Kevin. What? <laughs> At the end of the battle, the player with the most victory points is the winner. If players are tied, the battle is a draw. Each player can score a maximum of 45 victory points from primary objectives and a maximum of 45 victory points from secondary objectives. From a maximum of 15 victory points for each of the three secondary objectives you have selected for a total of 90 possible victory points from mission objectives. Any excess victory points awarded are discounted because with a five round game and most of these missions, you can't score the primary on round on battle round one. You could theoretically get 60 points if you maxed out rounds two Mm. through five. But you can never score more than 45. So they like basically, if you spill over too bad, it's 45 from the primary. If every model in a player's army was painted to a battle-ready standard, the player is awarded a bonus 10 victory points. This gives the player a maximum total score of 100 victory points. People are pissed over this. See, I actually like this because it means that I'm going to get t- I'm going to I'm never going to get shut out. It means I'm going to get 10 points in every game. See, and I, I'm also like this, and I, I think I'm like Kevin and kind of targeted, but I think both of us paint our armies when we're going to go play a, a tournament. Yeah. Until then, we're kind of playing friendly play, and we're probably using gray plastic. And I think, Kevin, I'll speak for you a little bit. I think we're both fine with this, because I think it, yeah, no, I, I, you get 10 free points. As for me, um, if I'm going to play a friendly game, you said this too, Rob, when we were talking earlier – if I'm going to play a friendly game, both people can just say, well, we're both going to use gray plastic, so don't worry about it. Or one play might say, well, it's a friendly game. Who cares about that point? Yeah. Or like, hey, we're, we're doing a practice game. I still don't have my my models fully painted, but they will be by the tournament. Is it fine if we just do you know do the, the 10 points? Because we yeah. know it will be. Or like, I just added this new unit to my army. I want to see what it does. But again, that, that's like, again, friendly play. Have this conversation. I, I know we had a, a letter writer an episode or two back saying like, hey, I really don't like painting. I just like playing, but I don't play in tournaments. I only do friendly games. Is it fine to paint? You know, is it fine to play with plastic models you know, or unpainted plastic in friendly games? And we're like, yeah. And this rule does not change that. Yeah. Like if your friends are all cool with it, just don't score the last 10 or just automatically award the last 10. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, I, I can agree. As as probably the person who has the least painted stuff, <laughs> I, I I still agree with this. But yeah. if you were going to a tournament, or if you were going up to a store to get a match play game, and they said, "Yeah, we really want everything painted," you'd be like, "Okay, I yeah. will just I'll take my ten point penalty and just, or I won't get the ten point bonus." You know, it's like yeah. it's it's not even a penalty. It's not a penalty. It doesn't take away points that you would have earned otherwise. It's just. <laughs> Even says it's a bonus. Right. And 
so another point I've seen actually somebody make as an argument, uh, you know, for people like, but I don't like, you know, if I'm playing just a pickup game, why should I be penalized? And they're basically like, then make the hardest list you can and outscore them by 10 points to win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if you're really that, if, if you're so busy focusing on playing that you can't paint, then just play better. And which seems a bit dismissive, but I think it's true. It's like you can win the game and have an unpainted army. You just have to outscore your opponent. Get good, noob. Yeah. <laughs> um, mission. They also specify mission objectives. During the battle, players can earn victory points by achieving mission objectives. There are two types of missionary mission objectives, primary and secondary. Primary missions objectives are described in the mission's mission briefing. Secondary mission objectives are chosen by each player after the mission has been determined and the armies have been revealed. In either case, mission objectives can either be end game or progressive, which this reminds me very much of Renegade Open. Mm-hmm. Endgame mission objectives are scored at the end of the battle. Progressive mission objectives are scored during the battle, exactly when is detailed on the objective itself, and can be achieved and hence award victory points several times. So now we get to the list of secondary objectives, and then we'll round out by talking like about kind of how the Eternal War missions are set up and what the primaries are on them. So second obje- secondary objectives, uh, much like the newer ITC missions, these are all in separate groups, and you can never pick two from the same group, because they want you to diversify how you play. So, for example... Uh, you can, and also they do specify again, you can score no more than 15 victory points from each secondary objective you select during the mission. I will also add a note. Some of these will never score 15 points. And according to Reese Robbins, that is by design. Some of these are easier to pull off than others. You shouldn't get, be able to score easy points. If you pick an easy one, it's probably not going to be worth as much. So just be aware of that. So purge the enemy category. We have assassinate. Score three victory points at the end of the battle for each enemy character that is destroyed. So if your opponent is playing lots of characters, try to kill them. Get points. Bring it down. Score two victory points at the end of the battle for each enemy monster or vehicle model that ha- with a wounds characteristic of ten or less that is destroyed, and three for each monster or vehicle model with a wounds characteristic of eleven or more that is destroyed. Titan Slayers. Score 10 victory points at the end of the battle if one enemy Titanic model is destroyed, or 15 victory points if two or more enemy Titanic models are destroyed. Okay. Which is a lot easier to keep track of than the number of wounds you've done to Titanic models across the game. (laughs) Slay the Warlord. Score 6 victory points at the end of the battle if the enemy Warlord is destroyed. Slay the Warlord. Not a great choice if you're trying to max out points. Uh, The No Mercy, No Respite category. Thin their ranks. If you select this objective, keep a tally of kill points. Each time an enemy model is destroyed, add 1 to this tally. Add 10 to this tally instead if the model that was destroyed had a wound's characteristic of 10 or more. A model can, if it is resurrected for any reason, i.e. it was destroyed and subsequently returned to the battlefield, potentially add several points to this tally. So like Necrons. Uh, assuming it is resurrected and subsequently destroyed several times over. Uh, at the end of the battle, divide your kill points tally by 10 and round down. This result is the number of victory points you score. So if your opponent is playing, you know, hordes, like instead of taking what Reaper in uh, ITC, you would take this. But also I like the fact that like big vehicles are worth, they're going to be worth at least a point each too. Mm-hmm. Attrition, progressive objective, score four victory points at the end of the battle round if more enemy units than friendly units were destroyed this battle round. So kill more, get four points. And these can be scored on round one, by the way. It's only the 
there's nothing nothing saying you can't. So you can alpha strike somebody and get four points. Then while we stand, we fight. If you select this objective, then before the battle, you must identify which three models from your army, not counting fortification battlefield roll, have the highest points value and make a note of them on your army roster. If two or more models are tied, you can choose between them. If your army has three or fewer models, you select you instead identify all the units in your army. A model's point cost includes the points of all weapons and war gear it is equipped with. You score five victory points for each of these three models that are on the battlefield at the end of the battle. So keep your three most expensive things alive to win. Uh, first strike, end game objective, score five victory points at the end of the battle if any enemy units were destroyed in the first battle round and score an additional three victory points if more enemy units were, than friendly units were destroyed in the first battle round. So again, you can't max this one out. It's worth eight maximum. Next, the uh, battlefield supremacy category. There's engage on all fronts. Score two victory points at the end of your turn if you have one or more units from your army wholly within three different table quarters, and those units are all more than six inches from the center of the battlefield. Score three victory points instead at the end of your turn if you have one or more units from your army wholly within each table quarter, and those those units are all more than six inches from the center of the battlefield. So if you have if you're in three table quarters, you get two points. If you're in all four, you get three points. And they're keeping you away from the center, so you can't just, like, have a unit. Well, also, the units have to be wholly within. But you can't just, like, oh, we'll have everybody clustered near the center of the table. Look, that was easy. <laughs> uh, line breakers Score four victory points at the end of your turn if two or more units from your army, excluding aircraft, are wholly within your opponent's deployment zone. So it's no longer an end-of-game check. It's just every turn. If you can get somebody up there, you, you can get points. Uh, domination, score three victory points if you control more than half the total number of objective markers on the battlefield at the end of your turn. Uh, then we have shadow operations. Uh, these include investigate sites. Score three victory points each time a unit from your army successfully completes the following action. Investigate site. One infantry unit, excluding characters from your army, can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase if it was within six inches of the center of the battlefield and no enemy units, excluding aircraft, are within six inches of the center of the battlefield. The action is completed at the end of your turn. So send somebody to the middle and have them do nothing for the rest of the turn. They're investigating. That's something. Uh, repair teleport homer. Score five victory points each time a unit from your army successfully completes the following action. Repair teleport homer. One infantry unit from your army can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase if it is wholly within your opponent's deployment zone. The action is completed at the end of your next command phase provided the unit attempting it is still wholly within your opponent's deployment zone. So it's worth more points, but it's riskier. Uh, raise the banners high, progressive and endgame objective. If you select this objective, then units in your army can perform the following action. Raise banners. One or more infantry units from your army can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase. Each unit from your army that starts to perform this action must be in range of a different objective marker that does not have one of your banners raised on it. Uh, see below. A unit cannot start this action while there are any enemy units, excluding aircraft, in range of the same objective marker. The action is completed at the end of your turn. If this action is successfully completed, that objective marker is said to have one of your army's banners raised on it. Uh, you their banner is removed if your opponent controls the objective marker at the start of any phase. You score one victory point at the end of each of your command phases, and one victory point at the end of the battle for each objective marker on the battlefield that has one of your banners raised upon it. This one's really cool. So it's a little like engineers, but not exactly. Yeah, kind of like the old, like engineers that like you said. But the fact that it 
you can keep it and it kind of well, as long as you can move away from it like the old demon thing of if you kind of stand on this then move away you still control the point right mm-hmm. and you'll just keep accruing points if like early on if you can get like guys on a couple of objectives and then just get banners up on them that's two points every turn and then if you still have them at the end of the game two more points not bad and then finally, the Warpcraft section. This is for your Psyker armies. Uh, there's Mental Interrogation. Score three victory points each time you successfully complete the following Psychic Action. Uh, mental Interrogation. Psychic Action Warp Charge, warp charge 4. Uh, one Psyker character from your army can attempt to perform this Psychic Action in your Psychic Phase if it is within 18 inches of any enemy character models. Okay. Psychic Ritual. Score 15 victory points at the end of the battle if any unit from your army successfully completed the following psychic action three times during the battle. Psychic Ritual. Warp Charge 3. One psychic character unit from your army can attempt to perform this psychic action in your psychic phase if it is within six inches of the center of the battlefield. Uh, that's, the, that's the risk part, being within six inches, but at 15... I mean, that, that, that maxes that point out, you said, but you have to do it three times during the battle. Yeah... That's going to be rough to pull off. It's like high risk, high reward one. Cause if someone gets with it, well, it's psychic. They can be within engagement range. Um, you can't do actions if somebody's within psychic or within engagement range of you. Is, is that on the psychic one too? You just have to stay alive. It's, it, well, it might still be considered an action and at, and actions can't be in, you can't start to perform it. Well, so I guess a psychic action is still an action. We'll have to get clarification on that. Cause they are in totally separate columns and formats yeah i i would guess so because you can still do psychic powers while you're engaged you can do psychic powers while you're engaged so yeah no it's it's possible it it might be yeah day one faq on that one especially because it is so it is worth so many points but you have to do it three times and in the center of the battlefields you're more likely to get attacked (laughs) right and remember that it has to be the same character doing it three times one unit has to have done it three times. Yeah. Now, and, and they can this, only do it once each. So, yeah. Is is this something that you can or can't do on the first battle round? You can do it on the first battle round. Okay. It's it's what just primaries that you can't do. I uh, it's it's based the the missions themselves specifically say that pri- the primaries don't get scored on the first round. Okay. And then finally, Abhor the Witch, you cannot select the secondary objective if your army includes any Psyker units. Score five victory points at the end of the battle for each enemy Psyker character unit that is destroyed, and three victory points for each other enemy Psyker unit that is destroyed. I know what my Tau and Sisters will be taking every time we fight against demons and Grey Knights. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> now, th- this is a good... And since you get to pick the objectives, yeah, if they're a Psyker-heavy army, that is a great one to pick. Yeah, and that that's the thing about this is you don't pick these until after your opponent has revealed their army. So you know what you're going into and like so like, oh yeah, you have lots of characters, I'll take assassinate. You have lots of psychers and I don't have any, I'll take abhor the witch. But if you have the minute you have one psyker, you can't take abhor the witch. You'll have to do something else. Um but you know, it's like it it's a it's a good list of secondary objectives and I think they're they're going and they Again, from what I understand, they were designed to be hard to max out. Like, so, this is not like ITC where it's like, oh yeah, if you're playing your game right, you should max out your secondaries every game. Not necessarily. And then to give an example of a strike force size mission, uh, we'll just start with uh, the very first one. Uh, strike force retrieval call uh, mission one is retrieval mission. It is played again hammer and anvil t- style. 
There are six objectives on the board. They are placed... There are two that are placed along the center line uh, 20 inches from the center so that they are in each player's deployment zone. There are... And then there are four more that are 12 inches out and then another eight inches in or back from the objective mark. So you basically end up with kind of like a very wide hexagon of objective markers. Uh, deployment zones are 12 inches from the center. So uh, technically hammer and anvil, but it's going to be the deployment size will be a little bit smaller based on the 44 by 60 table size. If, you, if you're using that, uh, the primary objective is take and hold at the end of each player's command phase player whose turn it is scores five victory points for each of the following conditions. They satisfy for a maximum of 15. They control one or more objective markers. They control two or more objective markers. They control more objective markers than their opponent controls. So hold one, hold two, hold more. This primary objective cannot be scored in the first battle round. And every single mission in here, the primary is hold is either hold one, hold two, hold more, or hold two, hold three, hold more in a couple of cases. And none of them can be scored first round. So again, that is mission specific, but it's pretty consistent through all the Eternal War missions. And then this mission has a specific secondary objective called Minimize Losses. At the start of the battle, add up the number of units in your army. This is your army's strength. If unit splits to form two or more individual units during the battle, then immediately increase your army's strength accordingly. And if they merge together, uh, like you mob up, uh, you'll reduce your strength. At the end of the battle, add up how many units from your army are left on the battlefield, including all units embarked within transports, but excluding all units that have been added to your army during the battle. If the total is 75% or more of your army's strength, score 15 victory points. If it's seven, less than 75, but is 50 or more, score 10. If the total is less than 50, but is 25% or more of your army's strength, score 5. And that is a secondary you can choose. It is not forced upon you in this mission. And pretty much all of the missions have a secondary objective that you can choose to take. But you are not, again, you are not required. It's not like the bonus points from an ITC mission where, hey, if you do this thing, you get extra points. It's if you like this secondary, one of these better than the other ones that are offered, you can take this one instead. Like, there's a mission that has, so that one has like a hammer and anvil style deployment. Uh, mission two has a dawn of war style deployment. Uh, number three has a table quarter style deployment with the nine inch circle cut from the center of the battlefield. Uh, four is hammer and anvil. Five is dawn of war. And six is like a vanguard strike style. And they even mark out the the sides of the diag like where the diagonals start with blue arrows and measurements, and they even say like this is what it would be on a forty four by thirty table. So it's like fifteen inches on one side and twenty inches on the other. So they've done the trigonometry for us. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. So it's it's definitely designed by like you can tell this has been designed or at least influenced by people who have made mission packets for tournaments. Hmm. But yeah, basically every every single mission in the Eternal War packet, it's effectively the primary is objectives. Hold object hold hold parts of the board. And then after that, that's what you decide is going to be your secondary objective. And that's true from combat patrol all the way up to onslaught missions. And I believe every single one has predetermined objective locations. Yeah, co even the combat patrol missions, like, there is no objective where, there's no mission where you are placing your own objectives. 
However, there is one mission, uh, mission five, where you can choose to destroy objective markers, which is considered nice. an action, but you don't get any points for it. Although you can take a secondary objective to get five points for every objective marker you raise. Oh, sorry. You get five points if you destroyed one, 15 points if you destroyed two. So yeah, that's, if, if the, the mission packet with chapter approved is at all like this, I mean, this is what you can expect for most match play games. You're going to be mostly playing, so you're gonna, you're going to want to build an army that can hold objectives because that is your only primary. And then, like, I don't know if there's really necessarily a way to build an army that can minimize secondaries because there there's enough options on secondaries now that you can kind of work around it. I mean, somebody will figure it out, but yeah, it does seem like there's it does seem like there's a good spread of options. So, mm-hmm. and also the like the fact that you can't double up on them. So, for example, you can't take the one for killing uh, big monsters or vehicles and take the one for killing Titanic. So, if somebody's running armagers and knights, you can't get points for killing both the knights and the armagers. You're going to get one or the other. But you can't have right. Both. No, I, I do like it. It seems like it's going to make force you to make choices. Right. And again, any good mission system should be built around making good strategic choices, both before the game and during the game. And I really do feel like this, we have, I have not played these missions yet, so I cannot tell you definitively if they, like how they feel compared to an ITC mission. We're going to try to see if we can get a socially distanced masked backyard game set up sometime between uh, probably Richard and myself. Yeah. But I like what I'm seeing here, and I think it's definitely a push in the right direction. It's probably better mission design than Games Workshop has had in a long time. With the possible exception of Chapter Proof 2019 still had really good missions. Mm Mm-hmm. But a number of these feel similar to that. And as you said, like by not having to place objective markers based on your whim or based on the train or things like that, you're going to, it, it's going to speed things up and it's going to be a bit. If I had to describe ninth edition compared to eighth edition, I would say eighth edition was a very streamlined rule set, but I don't think it was necessarily streamlined in all the right places. And I don't think it was necessarily stream streamlined the right way. And Whereas we had been talking about eight eight point or like ninth edition really being more of like an eight point five and having a little bit of cleanup and there's definitely been that a lot of the errata has been rolled into the main rule set which is good to see that that's been been consistent I think it's been keeping the streamlining where it makes sense streamlining a few things even more like modifiers and things like that to have a a net benefit uh, game wise and yet unstreamlining things that had been overdone. Yes. Like unstreamlining the terrain rules, unstreamlining the cover rules to make those things actually matter. Well, and I feel like they also eliminated a lot of things that, that were a lot of actions for very little, uh, for very little benefit. So like the change to overwatch. Now I'm not rolling a bucket of 50 dies to pick out the two hits, you know, that I got. Every single time Uh, we're not rolling off to see who places terrain, then rolling off to see who gets first turn, then rolling off to see who goes and then rolling again to see if somebody seizes, you know, it's just streamlining it. It's one, you know, it's you roll to to determine attacker defender, you roll to see who goes first. That's it. Yep. 
and also clarifying and, and codifying when certain things happen. Like, like I said, with like the before the game stratagems and like, yeah, like if it involves upgrading your unit, like taking an extra relic, taking an extra warlord trait or something, or like upgrading this character, like, so this is a captain commander or this is an exalted demon that all has to be done at the time of building your army list. And it's mm-hmm. clarified that that for, at least for matched play now, narrative open play, much more flexible, but for match play, if you're playing in a tournament or a pickup game. That's really what is expected. And I think having that in the core rule set is where it needs to be uh, specifying. Like, okay. Now is the point where you would put characters into strategic reserves and making it very, very clear when that happens. And then also, I guess because not every mission would have access to strategic reserves, like open play doesn't necessarily have it. I guess that's why they moved that into like a bit further into the rules section. I still feel like some of that stuff should have been in their core rule PDF, but I still, I like that those, those have been put back in that they've tied it to like battle forged armies and command points. Um, the changes to command points alone are a fantastic change to this game Yeah, to make our, so many more armies viable. Like, like we said with our review of war of the spider last episode, like, it would have been a completely different review for custodes or death guard if that had, if we did not know those changes were coming. And I like what I, I, I think, th- I think they're good changes and it will, it will fix some of the issues of armies being built to maximize command points rather than being built in a way to maximize what they do on the table <laughs> or, and I don't think like, so like, for example, with, Command like the way that detachments are made now. Do you think there's enough of a gain in running like a double battalion or something to like take advantage of two uh, different like chapter traits or something like that? Uh, not for like a battalion, but like I could definitely see going with like two patrols to do something like that. But but when you do that, you're limiting what other options you can take. So I think I think it gets list building is going to be more determined by what you want to take rather than how can I fit what I want to take into, into the, the detachments to maximize benefits. I think it's really much more, well, what am I taking? Okay. What's the most efficient way to take this? You know, is it worthwhile to split things out and get different chapter tactics or different things here? But if it's not, then you just throw them in one and, and you go. And I, yeah. I think that's going to help with the mono build, like the soup list that everybody kind of disliked. Yes, you still have the flexibility to take a soup list to splash in, you know, a, a regiment of guard with space marines, but it's going to cost you command points to do that, and you're not really going to have the same benefits. So, like, what's the reason you're taking those? Yeah, no, exactly. Because up until now, there was no doubt. Like, even for example, like a, a mixed sisters list. Now, like how many were like Valorous Heart and Bloody Rose? I mean, that was like yeah. one of the the stock standard builds. It's like, is that worth giving up three CP now? Yeah, it, you Maybe know, it's it like yeah. you you want those those points for strat like for Bloody Rose. You need the points for stratagems because that's where a lot of your extra hitting comes from. Do you want to give that? Do you want to have fewer of those? Even though you'll be gaining one a turn, you're going to start with a smaller pool than your opponent. Yeah, yeah, definitely impacts what you're what you're going to do. Yeah, which is why I stopped working on my sister's army until everything comes out. <laughs> no, and that's actually, I think, right now. I know a lot of people are kind of like eager to take these rules for a spin, but until 
we get updated point totals and updated faction FAQs to errata those factions to gel better with all the changes here. And like I said, I don't know, like a lot of the changes are those small adjustments that add up to make big differences. Mm -hmm. Until we have that kind of information, I would be hesitant to make any solid army list right now. I I don't know if you guys feel the same way. No, absolutely, because it's all going to change. Like, what, you know, we can look at things these rules and say, oh, you know, and, and we did, you know, like, oh, this, this edition is going to benefit MSU. But if they make all of the blob units, you know, half the price of all of the MSU units, then well, shit. Okay. Maybe it makes sense to take the blob units. So, you know, it, it really just depends. It depends if they cost things correctly. And, you know, as we've seen in previous editions, they tend to a not cost things correctly and have gross, like, uh, imbalances, but B, they also seem to try to fix it over time. So, yeah. And I don't think that's, that's going to be changing. I, I would imagine that we're still going to see the big FAQs rolling out twice a year. I, I don't see that going away because yeah. things are going to come out. Things are going to be adjusted. We know there's a whole new set of codexes that are going to come out that are going to be updated with this. We know that, you know, like they've mentioned that, um, Mit, like armies will have their own secondaries. Like you'll have a new secondary mission in the codex that is tied to just your army, or you know maybe you'll have multiples. Um, there are going to be new units. Obviously, we're seeing so many new Necron. Like Necrons are going to need a wholesale new codex with all this, all the new stuff they're getting. Yeah. Marines right. are getting more and more stuff, and I'm wondering if we're going to see some stuff get rolled out of the codex and into Legacy with all the new. Like they're adding so many new things. It's like. Or if, I know. or if they just get a Primaris-only codex. Yeah, I mean, that's you know? also very possible. Like, Primaris Space Marines have the same rules as Space Marines, but they're considered, which would be very odd for mix and match. As, but then as long as they share the same keywords, like, we're quickly hitting the point where we're going to have so many Primaris units that it, it like, we're, they're already kind of pushing out old-school, tac- you know, tactical-style Marines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like this code that codex is going to be gigantic if with all the new stuff they're rolling out. I mean, besides like the the new fortifications, they they also teased out like a chaplain on a bike and a new Primaris Tech Marine. It's like this is this is all coming. You know, what's going to happen to all the non-Primaris stuff short of Dennis's civil war that he keeps hoping for? <laughs> I keep on hoping for a lot of things that don't happen. That's true. It's not Dennis's civil war. It's everyone's civil war. (laughs) (laughs) It belongs to all of us. (laughs) So, all right. So, so what is your, your guys's feelings on uh, now that we've kind of gone through all the non-narrative rules for, for ninth edition. So I like that they've, like I said, they streamlined and have kind of fixed things that were, that took a lot of time and were rolling a lot of dice for like, not a lot of effort. I like the change to overwatch. I like the change to not having to do roll-offs beginning of the game, things like that. I, I like the format of how the rules have been laid out with the bullet points and like just listing out every step. I agree with you that I think like building an army should be included in the base rules. I think that's weird. Um, and we won't really fully know the impact of all this until we get the FAQ and the points updates. But yes. so far, I'm, I'm optimistic. Oh, there was one thing I forgot. 
is the rules appendix. This is kind of important for transitioning between 8th and 9th edition because this includes a the list of all the blast weapons, which is three columns in very small font. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so, like, I will not attempt to read this all here, but it, it is... It is everything from accelerated photon grenade to wyvern quad storm shard mortar. Everything from A to W. So basically, a lot of things that that show that have like grenade, bomb, cannon, you know, missile. Uh, those basically anything that would you think before that would have like a would have had a blast template in you know seventh edition. Right. I haven't seen anything on here that I would that I just look at and go, well, that's weird. Why is that here? I think everything kind of makes sense. I'll throw one at you. It makes sense, kind of, and I think, but also kind of not. The bolt sniper rifle. Um. So some of the things, like, I wonder if it's only going to be for certain, like, profiles of it. Oh, and, and, and we will see yeah. if it, like, when they release the FAQs, they'll they'll list, like, if something has multiple profiles. Like, this one's, yeah. like. Because, like, the rail gun is listed as a blast weapon, but I don't, I I don't know that I can that I that they'll make that change for every profile that it fires with because that it's I mean maybe the they will round that should be blast yeah I mean if they if they change the normal railgun shot to being a blast weapon that's awesome I don't think they will <laughs> yeah um, let's see they do talk about ra- then the important part here I think is the list of rare rulings. The rules in this section describe some of the more uncommon advanced rules as well as rare situations that arrive when one uncommon rule interacts with another and how to how to resolve them. So, for example, if sometimes a rule will tell you that a model or unit gains the benefit of cover even when they're not entirely on or in a terrain feature. If a model or unit is under the effects of such a rule then uh, and the rule does not specify what the benefits of cover are, when resolving an attack, that model is assumed to be... Uh, you get light cover, so the plus one to saving throws against ranged weapons. Um, ignoring the benefits of cover, they talk about how the difference, there's actually spelling out the difference between you don't get the benefit of cover to saving throws versus do not receive the benefit of cover to impose a penalty on hit rolls versus you just don't get the benefits of cover. There's like three different classifications that I'm assuming you're going to get FAQ'd. Uh, improving the benefits to cover. How units of Psyker works. Or if you manifest or deny a power with non-psychers, how does that work? What does it mean to shoot again? What if you? What about non-shooting abilities that are used in the shooting phase? How does always fight first or last work and interact with other things? How, sometimes you, if you have to fight with individual models within a unit, how does that function differently? What? How does fight again work? Here's here's a good one. Attacker's priority. While resolving attacks, you'll occasionally find that two rules cannot both apply. For example, when an attacking model with an ability that enables it to always score a successful hit on a 2 targets a model that has an ability that states it can only be hit on a 6. When this happens, the attacking model's rules take precedence. So Karn will always hit on 2s, no matter what, no matter what the rules are on the person he's hitting. Nice. I like that that was clarified. Yes. It's clarified. I don't like Karn hitting me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, he's gonna come. He's gonna come hit you a bunch. <laughs> uh, I just, right I, I'm just gonna run away and let him burn his own face off with his melt gun. Oh, that's, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> plasma gun. Yeah, I, I think in all of Eighth Edition, I think I fired his plasma gun like twice, 
because I was so afraid of like, you know, shooting himself in the face and both times he did. So, you know, <laughs> usually I just don't shoot with it. Right. <laughs> or morale priority. This, I think this is one that's come up before. Uh, while resolving morale tests, you'll occasionally find that two rules are in direct conflict and cannot both apply. For example, when a unit is being simultaneously affected by one rule that says it automatically passes morale and another unit says that another rule will say it automatically fails morale. When this happens, rules that say unit automatically pass morale test always take precedence over rules that say it's automatically failed. Similarly, rules that say no models flee from a unit always take precedence over rules that say a number of additional models flee. I like that they clarified that. Yeah. Uh, resurrected models. Uh, some r- rules uh, resurrect or return models to their unit in the same turn they were destroyed. For the purpose of morale tests, such models do not count as having been destroyed this turn. Exclude them when determining if a unit has to take a morale test, and when determining what to add to a D6 roll when taking a morale test. That's huge for Necrons. <laughs> uh, explodes. When destroyed, some models have the ability to... to that gives them the, uh, the chance to explode or crash and burn or lash out with death throws, etc., and inflict mortal wounds. If a model has such an ability and is destroyed, it is always the player controlling the model who rolls to see if it explodes, and it is always this player who rolls to see if nearby units suffer damage, and if they do, how much damage is inflicted. So no more of this, okay, I'll roll for my units, you roll for your units. You always roll for your own, what happens when your own vehicle explodes. So that is clear. Yeah, again, one of these things, it comes up sometimes, it's now clarified in the rules, who does it every time. Uh, They have a whole section on how reposition and replacement units rule uh, work with like, uh, like, can they move? What can they do? Stuff like that. Like for unit, like does like the jump or like when they teleport across the table or something. And then finally, one of the things I really liked is a four page small font rules, terms, glossary, universal special rules, baby. Yep. But like defining again, it's like a lot of the definitions in that yeah. you see sometimes reference like for even something simple like if you see something refers to a model can fly refers to any model or unit has the fly keyword there's a whole section on like what it means to like improve or reduce a characteristic yeah when improving a we- weapon skill ballistic skill or save characteristics subtract the appropriate amount from the number before the plus sign for example improving a weapon uh, weapon skill of three by one would result in a weapon skill of two up we all know this, but it's good to have it defined. Charge move has charged, has been charged. Uh, defining how to do a D3. What is a dice result, a roll result, a total? What is a... Like, what does it mean when a unit fights? Uh, what is, You know, it's like... When it's something in directs you to draw a line, what does the highest die result mean? <laughs> Immediately, see when... <laughs> when if a rule states that takes place when a certain trigger occurs unless otherwise specified the rule takes effect before any others uh you know it's it's just spelling out very clearly what like all these rules mean what like and what like terminology like vp means victory point cp means command point so it's just again this is like we haven't had like and honestly we haven't had a rules glossary i think in any edition of the game Right. No, this, yeah. <laughs> this so, is good. Yeah. So, uh, so far I'm digging the rule set. Uh, I know, Kevin, you gave your opinion. Dennis, Richard, what do you think? Well, I, I think I like it so far. I think it'll be interesting and change up the dynamics of things. I'm I'm just ready to try it out. And I guess unlike you guys, in my mind, I'm already thinking of, okay, I want to put this together and this together. 
it might not work. The ideas I'm coming up with in my head once I see other points and rules fact come out, but I'm I'm starting to get into the excitement phase where my mind's starting to roll ahead of possibilities that I can try and do in the future. Yeah, I I'm I'm looking forward to getting to play uh, again, and it uh, it looks promising. Like I don't I. I Still don't think this is going to be like the addition of, of assault returning that oh, strong, no. but you know, it, it, I, I don't think it's going to be worse off. So I think it'll be slightly better. I think there, there's more things to kind of even it out, but it's still a gun game. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our take on the ninth edition rules. And uh, we are looking forward to next episode when we have our normal format back. And if you have uh take, since, like I said, the core rules have been available for download. So if you have questions or opinions on this, or if you disagree with some of uh, the stances we've take, taken on this, I uh, encourage you to write in. We've got three ways for you to do that. First is our first names, at Preferred Enemies. That is Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at PreferredEnemies.com. Second is our Facebook page. We are at Facebook.com slash Preferred Enemies. Third is our Twitter account. We are at Twitter.com slash Preferred Enemies, singular. And uh, send in all everything you want to hear us talk about, all your opinions on the edition, and we will try to get to those over the next few episodes as we fill the hopper. Um, so, until that time, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and for good God, wear a mask, people. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.